Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 15 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. It's been a busy few months, and I've had difficulty during the summer to find time to devote to the podcast. But my family has now returned to the regular school year routine, so hopefully I can find time to post new content. I appreciate those of you who have reached out curious about upcoming episodes. It's great to hear from listeners, and I assure you, I'm getting these episodes out as fast as I can manage. If you're enjoying the podcast and you would like to help me make more time to produce it, you can help by visiting the psychedelic Christian slash support. I would especially like to thank the listener who recently contacted me, letting me know that they had a problem making a donation via PayPal. I think I have resolved that issue. And if you ever have any difficulties supporting the show, please let me know as soon as possible. Another way to support the podcast and expand our reach is to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. You can find the podcast on all the major podcast apps as well. I've recently made it available on Amazon Music and the Audible apps. You can also listen to the podcast on YouTube, Odyssey, and Rumble. Also find and follow the podcast on social media. You can interact with the podcast and one another at Facebook, MeWe, Float, and Twitter. I recently created a Facebook group for the podcast, mostly for friends of the show to interact with one another. I don't spend much time on social media, so don't expect a timely response there. I'm probably most engaged on Twitter. However, if you'd like to reach out to me, it's always best to do so via email. Contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com. It's highly likely that if you attempt to contact me through social media, it will get overlooked, especially through Facebook. I've been deluged with friend requests from all over the world there, and it appears that many of the accounts are bots or scammers, neither of which I have a desire to have interaction with. Personally, I believe that MeWe is functionally identical to Facebook, yet vastly superior. However, it's extremely difficult to maintain a following there when so few people have migrated to that platform. I likewise believe that Float is superior to Twitter, but it suffers the same hurdles. As for podcast apps, I recently started using the Fountain Podcast app. I have no affiliation with the app, but I highly recommend you give it a chance. It allows you to create shareable audio clips from your favorite podcasts. It has a simple interface and allows you to earn and share crypto micropayments, supporting content producers for their work. I believe this could be the future of podcasting, where a direct value-for-value relationship can be established between producers and listeners without middlemen or advertising. If you value the work of the podcasters you follow, please consider sponsoring them directly. This allows them to stay true to their message and make decisions that best serve listeners not the corporations that pay for the programming. So if you value this podcast, please support and help me get the word out. I believe that as Christians, it's very important that we investigate the topic of psychedelics and share our thoughts on the topic with one another. 
And now let's meet our guests for episode 15. Today I'm joined by Trevor Harrell. Trevor and I have been corresponding through email and he decided he would like to share his journey with others. But like many of us, we have either been too timid to share our psychedelic experiences or we have tried and not found a receptive audience. I believe that Trevor's story is valuable because his life has not exactly been a walk in the park. Like most of us, it's been a series of ups and downs, punctuated by struggles, failures, and new beginnings. Trevor is brave enough to share his journey with us and the role Christian faith and psychedelics have played in bringing him to where he is today. Today, we welcome Trevor Harrell to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Trevor Harrell, thank you for joining us. Just thanks for having me, Clint. I'm, I'm really excited about this. Yeah, I am as well. Well, Trevor, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your early life and in particular, you know, any spiritual influences or any uh, pivotal church experiences or, you know, books that were important to you, you know, anything that shaped, you know, your early life, especially from a spiritual perspective. Yeah, sure. Um, So for my story, it really starts with my parents. Um, My father he was born in Virginia. His, his father, my grandfather, was a World War II veteran. He was involved in bombing Japan, things like that. Uh, he worked for Boeing, NASA as an engineer. And he ended up passing away at 76 years old. I think it was in 1996. But my father was born in Virginia. And they moved to California um, so that my grandfather could work for Boeing in San Jose. Uh, My mother grew up in Los Angeles. She was raised Catholic and she converted to Christianity as she calls it. I mean, some people would say Catholics are Christians. Some people wouldn't, but my mom says she found Jesus at 20 years old. And so they ended up meeting at some point, um, around San Jose area because she was going to college there. Uh, So they were definitely part of 60s Jesus movement kind of stuff. They definitely uh, came out of that background, but had polar opposite lives growing up. My mother, I would call her a hippie, but she never touched drugs, never smoked, never did anything like that in her life. My father, on the other hand, he had a kind of a rough childhood and I learned later in life, some of the stuff that he went through. He started smoking cannabis when he was like 12 or 13 years old, probably. He would tell me stories of going out into the redwoods and smoking, but where psychedelics started for him was actually at 14 years old from, this is a story he told me. Uh, as an adult, he ran across an older man with a long beard on the beach. He said the man gave him a micro dot. Now my, my father was raised Christian in a Christian household, pretty conservative home. But he took this micro dot and he didn't know what it was. He was pretty naive about this stuff, even at that point. And in the 60s in California. Uh, so an hour goes by. And he's like, hey, I'm not feeling anything. He goes back to this guy and he gets a second micro dot, which is, from my understanding, liquid LSD inside a small crystalline capsule. 
from the story he told me, he basically just, it, when it hit him, it just hit him suddenly. And he was like in this whole nother world where things were growing on him, like vines and things. He described the, the sensation he had and like vines growing up his body. And he thought they were going to choke him out. At some point, he was near a cliff on the beach. And in order to end this experience he was having, he jumped off a cliff, landed on the sand and lived. Paramedics showed up. Um, there was three men that had to hold him down, tie him to a stretcher because he was trying to fight them off because he didn't know it was, he was totally disoriented. He didn't know what was going on. How Brought to the hospital. Again? 14 Sorry, years old. 14 years old. 14 years old. So very traumatic way to be introduced to psychedelics. For sure. I've heard many people have those kind of first experiences and still go back to it. So that's what he did. He would take LSD and go to high school quite often. He was on the baseball team, but he was quickly turning into a juvenile delinquent. He was kind of getting in trouble with the law, doing just petty, petty things, vandalism, things like that. He eventually dropped out of high school. I know at some point he was in some Christian camps to help him recover. And then at one point in his life, I'm not sure what age he would have been, but he had what they would have called flashbacks, insane, intense flashbacks, totally not on drugs. I believe he was in his bedroom. He might have been sick. So he was just seeing like full open eye visuals in his room, not on drugs. And he cried out to God and prayed to God to help him and heal him in that moment. And God did like that from the way he described it and the way my mom described it. It was instantaneous. He described it as having a pressure lifted off his brain. And once the pressure was gone, he could think clearly again. Um, so that's how my father got saved. <laughs> so he was, how old was he at that point, roughly? Him and your mom were obviously together. So He would have been between that 14 and 19 years old. Okay. He might've been, I want to say he might've been 19. Somewhere between there, this is another conversation we had as adults later in life. So my father had a lot of memory problems and later in life, he started remembering things again. Um, he he had memory problems because later in life he became an alcoholic, but he told me that he went to the original Woodstock. I'm assuming he would have hitchhiked there, but he remembers being there and having that whole experience. So fast forward to my parents meeting, they ended up living in Christian community for a while. That's how they met because they were in the same community and that's basically where everyone works or has something that they do to help the community and all the money is shared. And then there's a leader who's like, uh, they, these were Christian communities. There would be a leader who was kind of in charge. Well, this eventually kind of turned sour and they left. Like my father had to sell his motorcycle because no one else had a motorcycle. So that wasn't fair. <laughs> that sort of thing. But my parents had eight years of, from, from, according to my mother, wonderful marriage because he was clear and sober and saved and, and had a heart for the Lord. He really did. 
Um, it was a genuine turnaround for him. And he became a master Toyota mechanic, high school dropout, no education. He had a friend, a Christian friend who helped him learn a trade. So he became a, a master Toyota mechanic at some point. Um, but somewhere along the way he found, this sounds so cliche, but this is literally how the story goes. He found a bag of weed in a drainage ditch and he brought it home and he smoked it. And my father is the most addictive person I've ever met in the entire world. So he just was all in the cannabis at that point on. Um, it affected his career, his friendships, his relationship with the church. He actually lost his position as the sound man at the church because they kicked him off the team. They said, you can't smoke cannabis and be part of church staff. So, yeah, <laughs> before I was even born, I mean, that kind of stuff is just like in my history. So now I'm going to kind of fast forward to where my story starts. Uh, by the time I was born, uh, my father had pretty much become a full-blown alcoholic. My, he was still working. Um, and my father was homeschooling us. I was the youngest child of three. And, and I, of course, I didn't know this when I was younger. This is something I discovered as an adult. I was born with uh, dyslexia and ADHD. And my brother was born with high-functioning autism and ADHD. So uh, childhood was rough. <laughs> I had a very, uh, very traumatic childhood because of home life, household life. But it also kind of involved the church. And I, I love the church I was a part of growing up. Uh, I, and I still do. I mean, I just, I really cherish that church and it was a huge part of my life. But unfortunately, that tied into my childhood traumas. Um, you mind me asking what type of church was that? So it was a non-denominational home church. Mm -hmm. The my, my best friend growing up was the pastor's son, you know, so it was a very close knit family kind of church so i'm guessing if y'all were you know if y'all were homeschooled back in those days um your parents probably still impressed largely by this kind of back to the land jesus movement type yes uh, influence yes I guess. so a exactly. lot of that probably exactly yeah so i grew up in missouri i was born in san jose so this home church they left a, a big church in california came to this little home church in Springfield, Missouri area. It was actually a bigger church that dissolved. And then we were split off of that. So yeah, that's also a, a part of my history with Christianity is uh, church splits, kind of dramatic church splits. My pastor, uh, I, I, I love him to death. He's just a very wonderful man. He wasn't ordained actually back then. He is now, but he was a Marine. So that's part of my influence. And he brings that kind of energy and kind of thoughts to Christianity. By that, do you mean a more like structured conservative type approach or? Um, kind of. Also, he had a wild side. Uh, from what I remember, one of the events that led up to that church splitting 
he was in a church staff meeting and he bit the head off of a fish in front of everyone to prove a point. <laughs> so that's just something I remember from my childhood. I was really young. Uh, but before I was a part of this home church, we were part of this bigger church that split. And I was six years old. I would have been attending some some of the like children's Sunday school classes. And we came out to the adult service one day. Uh, my father wasn't even there. He was already not attending church at that point in my life most of the time. This is just kind of a kind of a bizarre story, but this was my first what I consider my first uh, mystical experience. Um, And it's actually how I got saved. But I was in a church. We came out to the basketball gymnasium and the teachers sat us down and there was no indication that we were supposed to mingle with the rest of the adults because they were having a worship service that was still going on. And we were just supposed to sit in the corner and be quiet because we're kids. And I remember just spontaneously just standing up and walking over to the group of adults and there were people running in circles having a worship service they were running and like I think some of them were carrying banners or flags and I just joined them I started running and the interesting part about it is is because I've heard people say about psychedelics that it's like being wrapped in a big warm blanket from the university someone said that on your podcast previously And that's how I remember that experience being. It was like, I mean, I was in this confusing, weird world with the dyslexic mind. Nothing made sense to me. I was kind of a troubled child already at that point. And all of a sudden, I'm I'm just wrapped up in this moment where I'm just, just wrapped in this blanket of love. And I didn't have visuals. I wasn't on drugs. But it was more of a feeling. It was like light from heaven just shining down on me. Um, It was a very intense feeling. It was just light shining down on me. And all I could do is just lift my arms up to the sky and jump. I tried to jump into the air as high as I could because I just wanted to be closer to the light. And I remember just being filled with this sense of love. It was just this deep sense of love and like awe for the creator. I I, I didn't have a concept for creator yet, but it was just like awe. And so after all this happened, we're leaving the church. A lady walks up to me. She kneels down on the floor and she looks at me and she's just like, she says something to me. That's just, I mean, it just stuck with me. And she said, uh, you know, someday you're going to be a great spiritual leader. I can just see it in you. And I was just like, huh? (laughs) Like, what does that mean? Okay. I'm six. (laughs) Leave me alone, lady. You know? So we went home and my mom, I mean, she just loves Jesus and she's just always been that way. She still is to this day. She just, she was a Jesus freak. And so immediately she's like, you know, trying to lead me through the sinner's prayer. And I looked at her and I said, mom, I know. And she was like, no, you gotta, you know, say this prayer. And I was like, no, I already know him. (laughs) And, you know, I, I was, it was just like this strong conviction that I just already knew the truth. So that was uh, kind of a dramatic way to be introduced to this whole thing we're talking about. (laughs) Uh, I felt that way as a child too. You know, my, my mom would come to my bedroom at night sometimes with the Bible and read something to me. And, Mm -hmm. and she would very politely, she never was pressured me, but she would say, uh, you know, 
do you want to go up and get baptized some Sunday? I'd just say, no. But I, it wasn't because I didn't believe. It was because I didn't think I needed it. I was like, mm-hmm. like this is already yeah. inside. I, I felt, yes. I already believed yes. and felt it. I didn't feel like I needed those formalities. Now, I, I recognize yes. the importance of those things now. And mm-hmm. I, I believe in the totally. importance of those things. But I just, I never would, I never would do it. I didn't get baptized until I was 19. You know, because uh, I just refused to do what I thought at that time was just like playing some formal game. But so I had like a deep conviction at a young age that I don't know what I mean. I, I think I was just a rebellious punk at that age already. But I, I just remember having a lot of thoughts of like, I'm going to show the world that you can get to heaven without doing these things. <laughs> I don't know. That was my little brain back then. You know what I mean? Um, But I thought that stuff and I I don't think I ever verbalized it to anyone. That probably played a role in mine too. There was some, definitely some punk. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, that leads into (laughs) some later stuff, but we'll get to that later. One thing I did want to talk about though, is uh, dyslexia just for a minute just because that played a really important role in how uh, the outcome of my life went. Having done a lot, discovered I had it and done a lot of research and read a lot of books about it, one of which being a really good read if anyone's interested in it. My mom introduced me to this book. It's called The Dyslexic Advantage. And it's a totally new revolutionary way to think about dyslexia because it's not just a mental impairment it's also a gift and i believe god gives people gifts for reasons um i've always i've always felt that way i was taught that from a young age so dyslexia is commonly misunderstood because people associate it with visual problems or reversals uh that's involved in dyslexia but that's not primarily what dyslexia is it's actually just having a deficit in language while still having high intelligence is really the best description I've ever read about dyslexia. So anyone who struggles with reading and writing and arithmetic, but is really bright and can test well and can prove they understand concepts, that's dyslexia. And I was like that all through school. My mom did her best homeschooling me up till about the eighth grade to teach me to read and write well. But like, unfortunately, she was still reading me books in high school just to get me through a class or I would have fallen behind. Math, I'm a little atypical for a dyslexic because math came easy to me, but it's not because I was good at math. I actually struggled with it really hard at first, but it's actually the way I taught myself math that made me good at it. And it's because, well, <laughs> I, I, I don't know why I feel the need to apologize, but I'm, I'm very scientific and I, I want to dive into some science. Uh, If you don't mind. (laughs) No, not a problem. Dyslexia is actually a abnormal structuring of the brain. Um, It's not, it's not one of those mental health issues where it's like doctors talk about chemical imbalances in the brain and things like that. Serotonin, whatnot. Um, Dyslexia is different. It it really has nothing to do with those things. Um, There are nerve roots in the outer cortex of the brain, which is the sheath that covers all of the other centers of the brain. Uh, there, so there's these nerve roots called mini columns. 
and they go vertically down into the brain from the surface. And in dyslexics, these nerve roots go deeper into the brain than the average human brain. I've also read that they are more spaced apart. So they're slower to communicate with each other, but they communicate deeper into the brain. So what that translates to is more interconnectedness between all the centers of the brain. Typically that function is managed by the hippocampus. That's kind of like the circuit board of the brain. That's where all the, quire, all the wires cross. Information is sent and received where it needs to go from that center. But in a dyslexic's brain, that outer cortex functions almost in the same way. So what that translates to is slower processing speed, but a completely different approach to problem solving. Mm -hmm. And the, the book I read kind of helped clarify some things. Think of it more as like, it's not like the person is less IQ or higher IQ. It's a shift. So deficits in some areas, peaks in others. And, you know, a, a dyslexic is not necessarily higher IQ or smarter than someone else in their gifted areas. It's because of the way the brain works and the way they get to an answer, the process they take to get to that answer is so different than the average human brain that sometimes that's a different answer than anyone else would have come up with. <laughs> so, and it possibly takes I, more time for them to reach that. Exactly. Conclusion. Yeah. Exactly. So I grew up, people would make comments at me like, you're retarded, you're slow. Uh, most of this coming from my brother and my father. My friends, they didn't say that kind of stuff to me because they liked me. So they would say more appropriate things like you're a stoner. <laughs> um, that was like an approved uh christian disparaging thing back then you know you're you're such a stoner and i remember my father being viewed that way he he moved out to springfield to work for toyota there and i remember him being treated very differently than he was in california so me not knowing i was dyslexic by the time i was finishing high school I really didn't feel like I had a whole lot of prospects in life. I was just like, I'm failing in high school. I actually tried public school for one semester, which was an interesting experiment. <laughs> I wanted to be on the football team, you know, typical teenager, you know, listen to punk rock and play football. So, but I, I wasn't really influenced by the drugs and the alcohol. I, I knew I wanted to abstain from that stuff. I just, it just wasn't for me. But I consider myself a true blue psychonaut, and I don't need drugs to do that. Most of my childhood, I was exploring my consciousness totally stone face over. <laughs> it wasn't until later in life, after doing psilocybin, that I kind of realized I've kind of been tripping my whole life. <laughs> so anyways, that's just kind of like my background. I appreciate you mentioning that about dyslexia because I've never, yeah, I've never heard that that in depth, you know, information on it. Um, I just, yeah, always classified it as kind of like one of the myriad of you know learning disabilities, and right. so I, didn't, I didn't know all those details. Right. So that is that is helpful. 
it leads me to question, which you may get into eventually. It leads me to consider mm-hmm. how psychedelics would play a role in that, because to some degree, you know, psilocybin has a way of doing that with the brain anyway, you know, removing exactly. the, the things that inter, intercede between mm-hmm. our normal day-to-day thought processes. Mm-hmm. But anyway, exactly. I interrupted you, so. so You're fine. But you, so, so you completed some, school through homeschool? I did. It was kind of weird, though, because I went to public school. I got held back a year, went to public school for ninth grade to play football. Next year, I went and played football for a homeschool team, eight man, eight man teams, not 11, not 11 man football, totally different game. But that year they were announcing the seniors during our last football game. And I told my coach that I was a senior and he announced it. And my mom was just shocked. She was like, what? You're a sophomore. And I was like, no, I'm a senior. I'm graduating. Cause at that point I was taking college courses at a community college. And I was like, if I'm taking community college, college courses, this whole homeschool thing for me kind of became a joke at that age. I was not getting an education. So I love my mom. She did a great job raising me, did a great job homeschooling me. Unfortunately, I was kind of let down between eighth grade and 12th grade. Um, Don't need to get into any details about that. But anyways, so I graduated high school at a Christian homeschool graduation. Uh, I, I do want to get into a little bit about homeschooling too, because that was another big influence on later chapter of my life. Looking back on it, I kind of got the impression like there was a lot of elitism going on in the Christian homeschool community in Springfield, Missouri at that time, 90s. I just remember a lot of talk coming out of people's mouth, like we're better than the rest of the world. We're smarter. We get more prestigious careers. We, we have the right faith. <laughs> you know, uh, there was a bit of elitism in the air, just generally speaking, throughout the Christian homeschool community. I'm talking about holiness people. I'm talking about um, all sorts of different denominations. So that was a a big impression on my life too, going into the next phase. So I abstained from most of that stuff through high school, but I was a little rebellious, uh, but nothing, nothing crazy. Uh, So once I graduated high school, I went to my homeschool graduation with a mohawk. I dyed it green to match my gown. And my friend came with a giant green mohawk as well and sat in the pew. (laughs) (laughs) It was just kind of my way of saying, I'm done with this whole establishment, man. I'm moving on (laughs) Uh, to to put it politely, if you know what I mean. So I I felt with high school as well. So basically my Mohawk was uh, my middle finger to the world is how I felt about it. Um, And then I rebelled hard. (laughs) Got my first car, started drinking alcohol and and smoking cannabis. It was actually my girlfriend from my freshman freshman year in high school that introduced me to cannabis. I had been inviting her to my church. I was trying to influence her in a good way. She ended up inviting me to her friend's house one time. And she had tried to smoke me a couple times times before, but I never got high. It's a common thing with cannabis. People either don't inhale enough or their their system just isn't used to those cannabinoids yet. So it took me two or three tries before it worked. And once it worked, it really worked. 
on my wild dyslexic brain. I remember just kind of zoning out for 15 minutes after one hit off of a, a bone. And when I came to, I was pointing at a dog that was barking at me, just laughing hysterically. And I was just like, totally unaware of my surroundings. My friends were gone already. I had no idea they had left. They were in the kitchen eating food. <laughs> Unfortunately, I had the bad idea to drive us all to the skate park. And I experienced my first visual distortions on cannabis. Uh, the entire road turned into an ocean and I was riding waves in my car. <laughs> in my 1991 Chevy Classic Caprice with comfy leather seats, I was coasting on waves. <laughs> so that was kind of my first introduction to that world. And I was just immediately hooked. I was going to ask it you, immediately. You, that was a positive experience, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it immediately just like, oh, this is a good fit for me. And it's just how I felt about it. Unfortunately, <laughs> I got a little too carried away with it. But I, I went to College of the Ozarks and it's Lake of the Ozarks, just south of Branson, if you know that area, yeah, uh, sure right on right on Table Rock Lake. So I went to that school. My sister was already attending there. Lots of my friends in my church had already gone there, graduated there. It was like the thing to do in our community. You go to College of the Ozarks and you get a, a good degree for free. <laughs> That's the deal. You work, hard work university is what they call it. You work, you get a free education, and you're in a positive Christian environment while you're doing it. At least that's the idea. <laughs> I had to cut my mohawk off just to go there. I had to take my earrings out because the dean knew I was brother of Bonnie Harrell. She was, at the time, honors student. Um, she was the dean's student. Uh, she won the Homecoming Queen Award. I mean, she was a big deal at this school, and I was her brother. And so I show up at this school they put you at the, in, into this week-long thing they call character camp. Like they're going to teach you character in one week. And it's basically just a way to get to know your classmates and get introduced to the school and all this. But uh, basically what it allowed me to do is network and, and meet other people who are similar-minded to me. Um, and how this happened is uh, I smoked cigarettes and there was only one spot on campus we were allowed to smoke way off in the woods, away from everybody else. We were the outcasts of society immediately from day one. So we would sit around and smoke cigarettes and discovered that, hey, oh, you like drinking? You like smoking? Let's start planning parties. So I got caught up in this, what I kind of consider my 2006 summer of love kind of hippie experience. Just lots of looseness, lots of booze, lots of cannabis, sometimes MDMA. I had a, a friend within that group. He was a lot older than I was. He was 30. He was also bisexual. It's not really important in the story. I just kind of felt like I should mention that. But we were close friends. And he was the one that really started talking to me about classic psychedelics, uh, mushrooms, LSD, he had also done a lot of hard drugs. So he was a big influence in my life because he steered me away from hard drugs. And there was plenty of it around in Springfield, Missouri <laughs> and Branson. But he steered me away from that stuff pretty hard. 
And he was kind of the first one to introduce me to this idea that psychedelics and cannabis and Christianity can mix. I don't remember too much about his philosophy because a lot of it went over my head. I hadn't really done psychedelics yet. So that summer came and went. It was it was wild. Um, unfortunately, when you're in that kind of environment and you're uh, the kind of person who's lived through a lot of traumas, uh, a lot of that stuff just kind of becomes trauma on top of trauma, unfortunately. So that was a, a hard period of my life to like understand and digest for the rest of my life. Did you have uh, any religious from, practice during that time? Uh, we were required to go to chapel and I did, and we would go out and party and go to chapel the next day. At the same time, I was attending my home church that I grew up in. And I remember many times uh, at, at that same time, and actually before I went to that school, I was already smoking cannabis and drinking with some of my friends in that church. Mm-hmm. So I would, I became the weed guy. I supplied it. I would drive to Springfield. I, I knew people. I had connections. I would buy stuff and I would supply the parties. And me and my friend from Eureka Springs, Arkansas would compete because he would bring homegrown stuff from Eureka Springs. I would bring city stuff that came from Mexico or California. So that was, that was me. And I was bald because I had to cut my mohawk off. I was bald before I had a mohawk too. A lot of people just saw me. They just looked at me weird. Some people thought I was a skinhead. Um, It was weird. Uh, I just, I got judged a lot at that school. And at some point, one of my friends came up to me and said, Trevor, everyone on this campus knows what you're doing. Everyone's talking about you. You have to leave. And I just knew at that point, like, that was over. I wasn't getting good grades anyways. So I dropped out. How would you have characterized your faith in that time? Like, did you still feel like connected to the spirit or to Jesus or to the church? Yes. Yes, totally. Um, I, I was, I had no animosity towards the church yet at this point in my life. I was still very open to talking about spiritual things with anybody and everybody. Uh, there was a few times though, I remember being out just, you know, wild nights with girls and I, I, I wasn't promiscuous as much as some other people. I really just wanted to have interesting conversation with women. And I would remember telling them I'm running from God and I know I'm doing it. Um, So I I consciously knew that that's what was going on. At least I thought so Mm -hmm. uh, at the time. And I verbalized it. Oh, and then another, another event that happened there. I also knew another guy that was 30 and he was into cannabis, but he was also a Coke dealer. And I I was good friends with him for a while, but at some point he called me up one day and he said, uh, some guy was stalking my sister. I shot him three times. I think he's going to die and I'm going to prison. And that was the last time I ever heard from him. So, you know, interesting, crazy, wild things going on in a Christian college where it's supposed to be a good environment to learn and be influenced in a positive way. And I was around that kind of stuff. And it was my own fault. But yeah, I'm sure there was was plenty of positive influence there as well. There was, there was, Oh, it's great school. I'm not going to like knock the school. Lots of friends that have gone there. It's a wonderful place, but it wasn't for me. (laughs) I was against the grain the entire time. So that leads me to the next thing about dyslexia. Dyslexics innately have a difficult time understanding and following rules. 
So that really played a big role in my rebellion. It was partially intentionally and it was partially naivety and just not understanding the rules and systems of the world yet. I was young and naive. So like how that played out at the college was all the freshmen are supposed to lock their cars up in a lot. You, you register your car on campus, you lock it up. I was oblivious to this. So I parked my car right next to the dorms as a freshman. So I was the only freshman that had a car Monday through Friday. <laughs> and I didn't even know I was breaking the rules until like a month into the semester. I tried to live on that campus because I really thought that this group of friends that I had found were just, you know, they were my brothers and sisters and I just wanted to live with them. And so I tried to live on the campus. And at one point, one of the dorm mod moderators came up to me and was like, I know what you're doing. You have one month to find somewhere to live. Well, that was generous. <laughs> one month. <laughs> yeah. I had moved all my stuff into one of my friend's dorm rooms <laughs> to make it look like I moved out. So anyways, I was just, that was my rebellious phase. So then I went back to, uh, I went back to Springfield, moved back with my mom because I had nowhere else to go. College wasn't working out for me. So I got a job. And during that period of my life, I just got really, really heavy into drinking. I started having blackouts pretty regularly. And something interesting that happened with that Every single time I would have a blackout, my friends would tell me what happened. And then my brain would form very vivid, realistic visual memories to fill in the gaps of every single one of those blackouts. I was already blacking out in, at College of the Ozarks too, but it got worse later. And still, still heavily smoking cannabis. Um, and one of the re one of the ways I, I was just really dysfunctional at that point in my life. It's hard to explain what I was going through, but there was just a lot of angst, a lot of pain, a lot of emotional turmoil I was dealing with, and um, it was just the only thing I could do to cope. And I remember using cannabis as a way to stop drinking so much. Because it was, it was kind of, I kind of felt like the two didn't really mix well. Because if you, if you would go to a party with alcohol, well, you're, you're going to be social and you're going to be wild. If you're at a party with cannabis, you're going to be more quiet, subdued, intellectual, have deep conversations. So at that time, I didn't feel like the two really mixed and I would do one or the other. But eventually I got so heavy into cannabis that it stopped working for me and it betrayed me and it started making me super paranoid i had once one incident i was sitting down with an old church friend we were catching up i hadn't seen him in years and we smoked so much within a period of about two or three hours that i became completely sober no doubt about it i was sober i tried to drink a bunch of vodka i couldn't even get a buzz off alcohol and i drove home completely sober it was the weirdest experience of my life but that, I believe, changed my relationship with cannabis, at least for the, for the time being. Because then I started shifting towards, like, I need to do something with my life. My life is going nowhere. I tried to apply to a, call, a school, a technical school, where I could learn how to work on cars, because that's what I wanted to do. My father was my hero. He was not really present in my life. And he was a big source of my angst. But I loved him and he was my hero and I wanted to follow in his footsteps, I guess. And I knew that he did a lot of marijuana and psychedelics. 
I just, I knew that about him. And I started getting really interested. I started really just feeling like I need to understand my father better. I need to understand my own history better. And I just need to follow this path. And I'm, I'm going to try this. And I started doing a lot of research. I got online and I was on Eurowid Vault reading trip reports. I was on Wikipedia, whatever, whatever websites existed back in the mid 2000s that had any kind of information about psychedelics. And I would research it to the nth degree because that's the kind of mind I had. I was curious. I wanted to know, I wanted to educate myself and figure out what I was getting into before doing it. But unfortunately, it wasn't a whole lot of good information around back then. So I was reading a lot of things online, um, a lot of forums, uh, just basically a lot of old school hippies just pouring out their philosophies and ideas about psychedelics on the internet. And I read a lot of it, absorbed a lot of it. One of it, one of the things that really stood out to me and I think had an impact on uh, how I experienced psychedelics in general was this theory I read about the thalamus playing a big role in how psychedelics affect the brain. In 2016 to 2018, I went to school and I learned anatomy and physiology in school. So that's kind of how I know this stuff. I didn't learn all this when I was 19. I was still dyslexic and not understanding the world very well back then. So I read this theory about the thalamus and the thalamus is known as the gatekeeper of the brain. It makes judgment calls on what information that's being sent to and from the brain is important or not. So your shirt on your skin, it's there all the time. Your brain doesn't need to know that that's information that does not get sent to your brain. Thalamus blocks it out. So psychedelics can actually shut that function down and allow sensory information into the brain that does not normally reach the brain. So that was kind of my understanding of how it works from the beginning. And I, I still hold true to that theory because when I, my first experience was with research chemicals, I didn't know how to get a hold of good LSD or mushrooms, um, but research chemicals were big at that time. And a lot of those research chemicals would mimic other classic psychedelics. So the two I tried my first time, I actually mixed them, uh, were 2CE and 2CB. They're both similar in structure to classic psychedelics. The typical structure of serotonin, you know, plus or minus a couple of carbon chains or whatever that changes structure to make, give it its unique effects. And I don't know why I did this. It was a really bad idea. It was my friend's idea. And the friend that convinced me to try this with him he was also from Arkansas and sorry, it seems like I'm going off track, but this is related. His father knew our pastor. They lived in Arkansas. His father was a pastor at a, I believe a Baptist church somewhere about two hours East of little rock. And at some point in my youth, his father had come to our church and he had the gift of prophecy. I, I want to say this would have been before I ever experimented with anything. I was 17 and he prophesied over me. And it was like really similar to what that woman said to me when I was six. He said, 
I was actually literally sitting in the back row of the church and I was wearing a leather jacket looking like a punk. And he said, you sit in the back, but someday God will bring you forward and make you a great leader. And I was just like, huh? Like, I'm just a kid. Let me be a kid. Like, stop. Like, people stop saying this stuff to me. So this was the his son, the pastor's son, that uh, came over to my mother's house while she was away in California. And we proceeded to snort to CE. It was the most painful thing I have ever felt in my head. <laughs> and I've felt some very painful things in my life. Um, it took about 15 minutes for the pain to subside. And when it finally did, I walked into my bedroom, turned on some metal music. And for the first time in my life, I could feel music. It was like it was just pulsating through my body. And music has always been a big thing to me as a dyslexic and an ADHD. It's calming, it's soothing, it allows me to think better. But in this moment, I was just so caught up in it. I was like just feeling it. And it was the most amazing feeling I had ever felt. Um, another hour or two passed. It was wearing off. Uh, for some reason, that first experience didn't dissuade me. And we went ahead and snorted the 2CB compound, which, so the 2CE mimics MDMA, which was something I was familiar with. I had done it before, but this was way more intense. 2CB was supposed to mimic LSD, but it's actually a little different. The very immediately after doing it, I remember walking outside and I'm looking at a wall of stucco and it's dark. And I see digital lizards crawling up the wall just by the droves, like a stampede of digital lizards. And I'm just like, whoa mesmerizing and uh and then just like that it was gone it was the first time i'd ever had visuals uh, uh, that intense and then the second wave of visuals was less visual and more of a feeling and more deeply psychological i remember looking up at the sky and it was a you know very starlit sky and Suddenly, I started seeing a bunch of lines being drawn up to a single point at the top of the sky. I'm just staring straight up at this point. And suddenly, I had this overwhelming sense that every single concept, idea, thing, object in the entire world was all pivoting off the single point. And at the same time, all of it made perfect sense to me. It was like for a moment, the entire universe and all its complexities were making total sense to me. And I was, I remember just, I verbally said to the sky, oh, it all makes sense now. And then the moment passed and I forgot what made sense. <laughs> the third wave of visuals was nothing profound, but there was a rock sitting in the grass across the street i'm staring at the rock suddenly the grass starts growing and waving 
the rock turned into a lion, starts walking at me, and then disappeared and turned back into a rock and grass. So this is these waves of like intense visuals and then gone. Um, which was kind of odd because most people that do psychedelics, they just have continuous visuals. Mm-hmm. They're either tripping or they're not. It was a little weird, but another thing that showed me because I read in the dyslexic advantage book, uh, one of those gifts is the ability to take two different concepts that are seemingly unrelated and make them related. It's because of the interconnectedness of all the centers of the brain. So that's actually one of the four gifts that dyslexics can have. And I feel like at that time, I feel like that's what the compound was trying to show me. It was trying to teach me something about my brain that was important. But at the time, I just had no idea what it meant. (laughs) I know you can't Um, know this because you are dyslexic and you haven't experienced a non-dyslexic brain. But do you think exactly? I'm assuming you've investigated this to a large degree. Do you think that it's possible that people who are dyslexic have a different experience? Then, yeah, the, the average yeah. person using psychedelics, yeah, totally, totally. And, um, people with autism have totally different experiences too. And I'll get into that later. And that, uh, that relates to my brother. So I had that experience and it just, it hooked me instantly. I was just like, wow, I can learn things from a chemical compound that I can't learn in a book because I don't read very well. And I don't comprehend things very well, but this can teach me something was kind of like my impression of it. So that was a positive experience. So then it was drinking involved and cannabis involved. And, and, you know, we were wild, crazy punks and we were just partying. That was kind of how I was introduced to psychedelics was in this party environment. And it just doesn't fit well, (laughs) but my next experience, uh, experience. I, I wanted to try after trying that two CB. I wanted to try some some real LSD, whatever that is. Um, it's hard to know these days. But I got it from an old high school friend. I hadn't seen him in years, and oh, it's been like three or four years since I had seen this guy. And he was heavily into psychedelics, and he had developed a severe stutter that he did not have when I met him on the football team very debilitating stutter he couldn't talk right but he was the one that that helped me find some lsd i I have no idea where it came from and i don't even know what it was but it was liquid that got dripped on some candy uh my friends and i it was me and two other friends we took three hits each so this is the story where I, i relate back to my father's story we, we took three hits each. We were anxiously very, I mean, we were all a bunch of high-strung, anxious teenagers. We were very anxiously waiting for this buildup to the psychedelic effect. My, one of my friends had, had done LSD before many times. So he was experienced and he was trying to like, you know, calm me down. Like, hey, you're not going to experience anything for a while. It's not like the first time we did it. The, the same friend this is going to be a longer onset, but I just remember building this anxiety 
two hours went by and I was not feeling a darn thing. None of us were. It was the oddest thing. And he was even starting to become perplexed by this because two hours is a long time for an onset. Uh, So we each took a fourth hit. Like, why not? Let's, you know, if this is going to work, let's make it work. Let's have an experience. Uh, Waited a little while longer. The fourth hit still wasn't doing anything. My friend who had had the first experience with me was getting annoyed and he walked outside and took off into the woods. And it was just me and my other friend left. And we were just like, what a disappointing night. We might as well light up a joint. So I'm, I'm, we're, we're smoking a joint. At the time, my friend was, I think the reason why he left is because we were talking about smoking cannabis. And at the time, he was abstaining from cannabis. He was against cannabis for whatever reason. So, we, you know, my friend and I are sitting out smoking like, well, at least we're going to have a good time. So, you know, we're smoking Mary Jane. He's off wandering around the woods, not having a trip at all because this drug isn't working. And as soon as we start smoking this joint, bam, it starts hitting us. We start becoming disoriented. And I walked back into the house. My first psychedelic experience, I had a really positive experience listening to Pink Floyd during it. Um, I remember listening to the album, Wish You Were Here, and it was just very positively uplifting. Um, So that was an album that was really, really important to my father. And he was the one that actually introduced me to that album. But this particular night, we were listening to Dark Side of the Moon. It's got a totally different energy to it. And so I walk into my friend's basement and there was a poster on the wall and I I remember seeing it when I was sober and it was really just like, like a, like a scene of outer space with like a gold frame around it. It was a very simple poster. There's like some planets and things, but Pink Floyd was playing and I walked up to this poster and suddenly the poster became 3d and it started this shutter effect that seemed to just go on for infinity and I was just drawn to it and I was just like well that's interesting and I started walking up closer to the poster and as this is happening Pink Floyd is just blaring in my ears and I don't remember what song it was but it was like I felt like Pink Floyd, if that was a person, I forget the lead singer's name. It was like Pink Floyd himself was calling to me. It was like, come. It was inviting. It was inviting me into this infinite tunnel. But then suddenly I got scared. I suddenly felt like this was a really demonic force, almost like sorcery. And it scared the daylights out of me. And it literally felt like the devil was trying to pull my soul out of my body through this portal in this poster. And I took a step back away from the poster. Suddenly when that happened, it just, it just scared the daylights out of me. And suddenly the room around me was just spinning. Everything was waving around wild, fast, frenetic, nothing made sense. Total chaos in my brain. I tried to lay down. I thought maybe I can sleep. Bad idea. (laughs) Very bad idea. I had to get back up. 
I walked into a different room, like maybe a different environment will help, sat down in a chair, tried closing my eyes again. Everything was just swimming around me. It was just confusion and chaos. And at that point, the friend I smoked the joint with had already gone upstairs. The other friend was out in the woods somewhere. And I sat down on this chair, put my head in my hands, and I just started crying out to God out loud. And I said, God, please don't let me go insane. Keep my mind intact and protect us tonight. You know, it was just like crying out. I was in agony and I was like, just, just at the end of myself crying out to God. So that happened. And immediately I felt like I was doing it but I felt like I consciously willed all the hallucinations to stop up until that point. It was totally uncontrollable. And I just like willed them to stop the same way you would will a hiccup to stop. And so my brother and I always felt like we had psychic powers when we were younger, my brother would have dreams and then the dream would come true and he would live out the dream and reality after the dream. Kind of like deja vu, but he would have clear memories of having the dream. Um, and I, I, I had similar experiences to that. But this particular case, being on LSD, uh, well, eventually I went upstairs. I found one of my friends. He was having a horrible time as well. And we started talking. And, you know, he was like, man, I thought you and the, this other guy were like totally against me and you guys just hated me and were out to get me. And that's why I left, you know, and I was like, well, I was thinking the same thing about you two, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, like you guys just were not wanting to be around me at all. And, you know, so we were both thinking the same thing together at the same time. And we were talking about this. So we're like, okay, well, let's go find our other friend. He didn't smoke the joint. Maybe he's having a better time. Well, we finally found him and he was actually having the same exact experience we were having, it turned out. And we all sat down on the back porch and we had a conversation about it. We could tell the LSD was still doing something to us, but no more visuals, but we were still like mentally just struggling to grasp reality uh but we were all talking openly and they shared with me how they felt like i somehow controlled or manipulated their trip experience and they were completely aware of this happening without even being in the same room with me and that it seemed like all three of us stopped hallucinating at the same time so then me and me and the friend from arkansas uh, it, at one point it was, it was settling down enough. We felt like we could drive and we drove back to my mom's house at like four in the morning and we told her all about it. That, that was just a really, really weird one. And I, I, I remember that one, just that one really affecting me. Like just, it just shook me to my core. A little background before that through my childhood I had been around a lot of people in the church who would talk about having hallucinations about angels and demons, not on drugs. So that was something I had been exposed to. And that was something I always desired to experience. I wanted to have, 
I, I didn't care if it was with an angel or a demon. I wanted to have an experience to know if it was real. So in a way, I kind of feel like I manifested that experience. It was, it was a pretty weird one. So after that, I, I went into the military. And it, again, it was like I was saying, I just felt like I didn't have anywhere to go in life. A lot of my friends were getting into dealing drugs. All, again, all church friends. I, I felt like I had two options in life. It was become a drug dealer, go to prison, or join the military. That's pretty much how I felt. I had a lot of self-destructive behaviors. I was getting into um, I was getting into the metal music scene, and I would say that was probably the start of me wanting to leave Christianity and wanting to leave the church. So by the time I was in the military, I was still consuming a lot of alcohol because I felt like cannabis was kind of helping me in some ways, but in, but then in other ways it was detrimental because I just smoked way too much of it. But in order to cope with not having that in my life, I leaned even heavier into drinking and metal music. So I got into what I would consider like kind of the crest of counterculture metal during that period of time. The music, a lot of it, uh, you know, a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions of metal, like it's Satan worship, it's demonic. It's really none of those things. It's really a lot of people who've been hurt by religion and reject religion. And they, a lot of their lyrics are about those very things, um, dealing with mental health issues, dealing with depression. So for me, it was really just a good coping mechanism and well i thought so at the time well uh, those those people are expressing you know the same feelings you're having so there's a certain sympathy to their exactly you know to their misery you, you enjoy that company to some degree I think. exactly and you were in the and air force is, correct the air force yeah, air force i was the air force 2007 to 2013 um i wasn't quite old enough to join right after 9 11 as a rebellious punk, I would say I was really anti-war and really anti-government. And the only reason I joined the military was not out of patriotism. It was really pretty selfish. I wanted an education and a career. Um, and it's a good way to do it. So, you know, I did my research and looked into it and talked to a lot of people that had done it before. So I thought it was a good idea at the time. But I, I, I really leaned heavily into that metal music scene during that period of time. And I got I really got into mosh pits. I had a lot of anger. I was very angry. I, I was embarrassed to call myself a Christian and I wouldn't really talk about it with people. Even if other people came out to me as being a Christian, I was just like, that's just a, an embarrassing label. And I felt like I wanted to kind of remove myself from the label, uh, but not so much like nothing atheistic yet, but Something that happened to me during, so I actually started doing this stuff at 17 before I got into psychedelics. I was going to rock shows at 17, getting into mosh pits and things. But at this point in my life, I, I just leaned heavier into that more than ever. Uh, I started bodybuilding. I got up to 215 pounds. And really my sole purpose was to uh, do as much damage as I could at music shows. Um, 
I would purposely go to the most violent shows I could possibly find. Uh, I lived in Europe for two years, so violent metal shows were a plenty. Never like weapons or anything, but lo- lots of punching and elbows and, and throwing people around big, strong dudes like myself. Uh, I liked to feel like I was in control because at that point in my life, I felt like everything was chaos. There was no control in my life. And in a mosh pit, I felt like I was in control. And I also felt like I was in community. And that sounds kind of weird. But when a bunch of metalheads are moshing in a mosh pit, they actually look out for each other. Uh, If someone falls over, you stop and you pick them up. If a brawl breaks out, and someone's getting hurt, you break it up. It's brotherhood. It's help each other not get injured at all costs while having as much fun as possible. Yeah, and, I've been in a couple of those back in the day. So Cool, cool. Uh, I, I used to actually, I, w- I would, be, before the military, I would go to Christian rock shows and I would, uh, I would start mosh pits and then get kicked out. <laughs> but uh Anyways, um, it kind of became church to me because I was not attending church at the time. I I didn't have church in my life and that became my community. It became church. It almost became like a religious experience to me. And uh, I just remember learning a lot of like concepts through metal that kind of shaped my beliefs moving forward. Um, And kind of like, like, I just remember the pinnacle of all of that was going to grass pop metal meeting in 2009 in Belgium, over 60 bands, a hundred thousand people in the crowd, slipknot headlining. It was wild. I got pickpocketed that night, lost my wallet, but I was into this philosophy that uh, I was kind I was sort of into straight edge subculture, but not so much into the philosophy more in, like how you conduct yourself at a concert. And that was, you go in dead sober, no alcohol, no marijuana, uh, for the purpose of being mentally sharp to do as much damage as possible at the show. (laughs) Uh, So that was what I was into. But the Slipknot show, it was literally 100,000 people crushing in on me and nobody could even move. And I actually got lifted up off the ground. My feet were not touching the ground for about 15 minutes. And I was almost laying sideways at one point in the crowd. I was leaning over at about a 30 degree angle and the entire crowd somehow swayed the other way, just like a wave and stood me the other direction and then stood me back up. Weirdest thing. But anyways, that's- So everyone's that's, just packed and they're like sardines. Exactly. Wow. That's So that's, that's metal concerts. And for anyone who doesn't, no slipknot um they talk a lot about religious stuff and they did a lot of drugs throughout their music career um so i started developing this concept of duality because of my favorite song of theirs called duality it's kind of some interesting things i i've even gleaned from that song recently the very opening phrase of the song is I push my fingers into my eyes. It's the only thing that slowly stops the ache. And what that meant to me was the only way through this pain I'm going through is to experience more pain. 
It's the only thing that stops it. The previous pain. And it's kind of interesting because I was thinking about that song earlier. And I was also thinking about how it's it's kind of it's kind of one of those universal truths that the only way to get through pain is to go through it. There's no easy escapes from pain. And it's also kind of like saying that um, the very they're, next they're line. They're kind of making was, the case that physical pain will at least distract you uh, temporarily yes. from maybe the spiritual emotional pain. Yeah. Yeah. At least it did for me at the time. And I believed in it, you know. It makes sense so, to a degree. Yeah. yeah. So and then another interesting line from that song the very next line i think is um uh jesus will never rent or push his way inside and uh i don't know that those those like early impressions from metal music like have stuck with me a long time and i think that one still kind of rings true for me now that jesus is not forceful so yeah interesting things i would glean from metal music but and this is stuff I, I'm actually really nervous to even say, but um, because uh, the, the military does not know any of this stuff about me, according to uh, their records, I've only smoked cannabis never uh, seven times and I've never done all this drugs because that's what my recruiter told me I had to say to get into the military. I also had a misdemeanor drug record. I had a marijuana possession, literally a bag of seeds and stems. The cops that pulled us over, uh, they thought I was a rock star for some reason. And they were just like, hey, man, we know you're high. We can smell it on you. And so I told them the truth. I even told them where it was in the car. I was like, it's a bag of seeds and stems. What are they going to do? Uh, but they still they still gave me a ticket. Um. I thought being honest would get me out of a situation, but it didn't. And, uh, it, and looking back on it now, I, I, I kind of have this realization that, uh, if I was black, I probably would have gone to jail. <laughs> no doubt about it. But, uh, you know, that's just what it was at the time. And I had to get a, um, waiver from a, I had to go in front of a judge and ask him for a waiver so that I could serve my country in the military uh to wipe my record clean i had to go in front of a judge and beg for that just to get into the military as soon as i was in the military um they were investigating me they wanted to know more about my history they wanted to know more about my drug use in boot camp well i guess that's going to affect you know what levels of clearance you can ever achieve and things of that nature so it could it could Unfortunately, I had a lot of traumatic things happen to me while I was in the military as well. I had a better experience at my first base in Europe. I felt like I was part of a team and my command took care of me. But I got stationed in another base in, military, in, in uh, Florida and it was a complete 180. Um, the commander was immediately, oh, well, I got to backtrack. While I was in Germany, that's when I started getting put on psych meds. I had a drinking problem. I told my command I had a drinking problem. I wanted to identify it and take care of it. And they were like, why are, why are you drinking so much? And I said, well, I'm depressed. So they said, go see a psychiatrist. And I was like, 
I had never even considered doing that before in my life. Um, I was raised conservative Christian and mental health was not really on our radar. And most people didn't take, uh, most people didn't seek help from a doctor and take medication. So this was a new experience for me at 20 years old. I walked into a psychiatrist's office. It was a lieutenant major in uniform. And it was the worst experience, hands down, I've ever had with a medical practitioner. Because he handed me a book. He made me read the simple description about what anxiety and depression are in the book. And then he looked at me in the eyes and he said, what do you want me to do about it? I was like, I don't know. I want to not be depressed and I want to stop drinking. And he said, well, do you want therapy or pills? And I was like, I, I really don't care at this point. I just want to get better. And so he just started prescribing me pills. And I really didn't feel like opening up to this guy about anything in my life because he was a lieutenant major with a uniform on. So that's how I was introduced to mental health care. Um, you mind me asking what those were? It was like a SSRI or? I got put on Rimron. It is a powerful sedative. His theory was that it would help me with sleep. And then if it helped me with sleep, it would help me with depression. I was experiencing sleep problems at the time, not because I was an insomniac, but because I lived in dorms and people partied 24 seven and had bass pumping out of their dorm rooms at all hours of the night. So he gave me Remron and it definitely helped with sleep. I do remember starting to have a lot of vivid nightmares at the time. One of those nightmares or just dreams, I guess you would say, I wouldn't even call it a nightmare was kind of a mystical experience in and of itself. I had a dream that I was wrestling with myself. And during this dream, I had the self I was wrestling with had a tattoo on his arm. The tattoo on the arm said powerful yet Invictus. I didn't know what this word Invictus was. So I looked it up. Uh, basically means invincible. Um, but there's a poem. I'm trying to remember who it was. It was Ernest Hemingway. But in this poem, at the end, he says, I am the master of my fate. And I am the... See, now I... I wish I, I had it on me. I want to quote it. I'm vaguely familiar with the, uh, the poem you're speaking of. I, I can't quote it. Anyways... Myself. If any listeners are curious, go look it up. This poem became really meaningful to me. I'll find uh, it. In my, I'll, I'll add a link to the uh, to it yeah, in, in the notes. Yeah, that would be awesome. Thank you. But it became significant to me because I like in my creative mind, I came up with this whole concept of like this alter ego that I have, where I could be this really powerful force in the universe. But my weakness was that I thought I was invincible and I was not willing to submit to a higher power. <laughs> and I started becoming uh, conscious of this and I was thinking about it a lot. 
And so eventually I had another incident where I blacked out from alcohol. I was trying to abstain from alcohol on my own, but unfortunately I started mixing alcohol with the Rimron at one point and I had a blackout at a Christmas party, uh, December of 2009. That night I got arrested. I don't remember any of it, obviously. I woke up in a friend's room not my own with my keys around my neck. I was, did not know where my keys were and I was looking for them frantically when I finally realized they were around my neck. And then I went into my room, into my own dorm room, got a call from my chief. And he said, do you know what you did last night? I said, no, I know I was drinking and I blacked out. And he said, uh, you took a cab back to base by yourself, didn't pay for the cab, went and got lost on base. I was pounding on people's doors to ask, begging people to let me in. It was 10 degrees outside. I was freezing. I had no jacket. I was in slacks and a long sleeve shirt and a tie. That was it. Um, so people started calling the MPs about that. And they eventually picked me up. I was passed out in the cops dorms on a couch in the, day, in the day room, which is a common area. Took me to a drunk cell. This is where I started remembering coming to. And I remember just feeling like a total loss of control. And I really didn't like it. I felt like these people were being overbearing and trying to control my life. And I was very angry about it. And I remember walking up. This is within my blacked outness. I have no idea why I remember this one thing clearly, but I know this is a memory. I walked up to him and I put my hand in his face like a TI and I said, I'm going to effing kill you. You are ruining my life right now. And then he grabbed me violently, spun me around and cuffed me. And I blacked out again. And I was told that it, again, it took three people to wrestle me into a chair and hold me down and calm me down until I stopped raging. I was that violent, just like my father had been when he was 14 on LSD. A lot of weird stuff in my father's life reoccurring in my own life. Uh, at that point, I had already identified as having a self-identified as having a drinking problem. So the military forced me to go through uh, rehabilitate drug and alcohol rehabilitation. It was a six-week inpatient hospital stay where I was not allowed to leave at all for the first two weeks. They were very controlling, very like we're here to teach you a philosophy about getting off of drugs and alcohol, and that's it. That's our only purpose in life. But one thing I did learn from that was the psychologist I saw taught me mindfulness meditation. He brought me through this guided meditation where he told me to close my eyes and imagine a place that was peaceful. And I was imagining just being out in the woods with the sun shining by a creek, hearing the ripples. And it was just like nature. That was immediately where my mind went. And, you know, we sat in that moment for five or 10 minutes and he's, you know, 
pulled me out of it. Nothing crazy. You know, I was still in my right mind. I wasn't hypnotized the whole time. I knew I was conscious of my surroundings. And he said, uh, this is a place that you can return to at any time for the rest of your life. And that was pivotal. That was really pivotal. And I was also in AA. There's a lot of discussions about higher powers. I was still angry at the time. And I remember being kind of, kind of dogmatic from my, my Christian upbringing in some of these AA meetings, because they would talk about these higher powers. And I would be like, so anything can be a higher power, right? They're like, yeah, like a rock can be a higher power. I was like, so the styrofoam cup right in front of me can be a higher power. He's like, yeah. And I was just like, well, I completely reject that notion. That's stupid. Like, why don't you just believe in the one true God? You know? And I just remember being like, just adamantly like I'm right and you're wrong. And this is, this whole thing is stupid, but I, I did the whole AA thing for six months. And, and then I left. Um, I, I felt like I didn't need it. I felt like I could do it on my own. Um, again, I, back to that, uh, that poem, I was the master of my fate. I was in, in control of the universe. And I, I, I was definitely going in that direction of that kind of thinking, but luckily right after rehab, I immediately got plugged into the navigators outreach within the, within the military. They are a Christian foundation that a lot of, a lot of the leaders are retired military that are mostly chaplains and they basically spend the rest of their life doing outreach to other military kids like myself. So this man he became my mentor at one point. And I remember how it happened. I went to his house to play board games. I was kind of a geek. I was really into nerdy stuff, video games, and you know, dyslexic mind again, ADHD, all that stuff. So I was super into, he was a nerd too. And I was super into all this stuff that he was into. And I was over at his house, he and his wife, and he offered to give me a ride back to base. And he looked at me and he said, how's Trevor doing? And I was like, what? And he said, no, like, really, how are you doing? And I can honestly say it was the first time anyone ever said that to me, at least in that way. And immediately it formed a bond of trust with this man. Something previously that had happened to me, I was in group therapy when I was in rehab. And they were trying to get me to open up and share in the group. And I remember I had this thing welling up inside of me and I called it the darkness because that's what my father called it. He felt like he had this darkness inside of him that he couldn't control. Um, a little more history on that. Uh, he did almost go to prison once for attempted murder. So that is also in my history. Uh, and that was my own father. He also escaped a, a mental hospital one time and was just on the loose. So that was weird. So I'm in this group meeting and they're trying to get me to open up and this darkness is welling up inside of me. And the group therapist, and I, I had this thing about me because of my childhood, I was a really emotional child. And because of being bullied and stuff, I would, cry a lot my mom would punish me for crying and eventually I stopped crying I was just like I gotta be tough I can't show my emotions at all anymore and I had been that way for years 
uh, all through my punk years and military years. It was just like, I'm tough. I'm never going to show emotion. At one point I got called into my chief's office. That's E9 top enlisted rank. And he was yelling at me about a drinking incident I had. And he thought I was eyeballing him and bowing up at him and proceeded to take his shirt off and started pounding on the desk saying, if, if you want to fight, I'll throw down right now. Let's go. And he was just screaming at me and I was shaking in my boots, literally about to cry. But he thought I was, uh, I, I always had this, uh, this weird aura about me throughout high school too, where people were intimidated by me. Uh, they didn't want to approach me. Uh, uh, I would have multiple people tell me that they thought I was just like some crazy psycho skinhead that was going to kill people. Just like, there was always just like this thing about me that people picked up on and then they would get to know me and be like, wow, you're actually not like that at all. Just, but I was in this. Up. Yeah. Just had everything yeah. bottled up. Yeah. Yeah. Really bottled up, stuffed it way down. And so I'm in this meeting and they told me to go look in the mirror and look at myself and actually like look into myself and, and, and reflect on my own self in the mirror. And I just remember just like hating them for it. I was like, don't force me to do this. I, I do not want to go through this right now. It was just, I mean, that was just like a overwhelming thing. So, so back to, this man asking me, are you okay? How are you doing? Nobody did that for me previously, unfortunately. And so I ended up going to chapel with this man and going to Wednesday night Bible studies and really getting involved heavily again in Christianity and sharing my faith with people again for the first time in years. But after that, I went to Florida and I had some really bad experiences there that I won't get into, but basically I got an article 15, which is a non-judicial uh, court martial. Basically it's the military can do whatever they want to you without court. So that happened. It ruined my career. Half of my squadron was out to get me. People would just say disparaging things to me nonstop. I really didn't feel like the incident that happened that got me in trouble was any fault of my own. I felt like I just got dragged into a really bad situation. Wow. Just a lot of stuff going on in the military, but I don't want to spend too much time there. So I, I got out and I, again, it's just like confusion, bewilderment. Where do I go? I just spent six years in the military being indoctrinated and brainwashed and I didn't fit in because I'm dyslexic and I did psychedelics and, and that whole thing didn't work out for me. One thing that stood out that was a positive note for me though, at the very end, the man that was involved in the incident that got me in trouble actually came up to me like days before I left. And he said, I'm so sorry. I drug you into that whole mess. It wasn't your fault. And it was the first time anyone said that to me. I had been treated horribly by my command and my squadron for about two years at that point. And it was the, uh, my commander literally pulled me in the office and he said, you're a disgrace to the military. You're just a, you're a horrible person and you should be ashamed and just leave my office. I don't even want to talk to you. 
that's how belittling that whole experience was. So I get out and I'm just like, where do I go? What do I do? I wanted to continue to pursue this idea of working on cars because I was, you know, passionately wanting to find some way to connect with my dad. Um, my dad had moved away when I was 14. We were in Missouri and he moved to Colorado and he just wasn't around other than a few visits that I would, my brother and I would drive out to see him. And that's when I started falling in love with nature a lot too, when I was younger, going out to Colorado. But, you know, I wanted to pursue this car thing and I went to, I went out to California. I went to a metal fabrication school for seven months learned a lot of wonderful things, learned how to weld. At the time, I was still not drinking at all. I was totally sober. I was just committed to living a life of sobriety at that point. And uh, as far as alcohol goes, but I wanted to try cannabis again. And my first time going back to it, I was actually visiting my dad on the way out there. And I stopped. I'd never, I've never, I never smoked cannabis with my father my entire life. And I know he smoked cannabis his whole life. It's kind of my one regret that I never smoked with him, but, uh, I went and stopped at a dispensary sort of in 2014, you know, only been legal a few years in Colorado. It was like, Oh, you're recreational. Uh, well you get the snickle fritz (laughs) is basically how that worked. But, uh, you know, you didn't get a selection of all the fine medical grade cannabis they had, but even that stuff was way too potent for me. I, I, stupid me. I rolled up an entire joint of it because I used to smoke multiple joints a day, smoke the whole thing to myself. And it was the worst experience I've ever had with cannabis. And I flushed the rest of it down the toilet. Because my tolerance was gone, really. Uh, but I, I had some roommates that smoked cannabis and I was slowly kind of like trying to reintroduce myself to it. I would just like take one hit and quit um, because that's how potent this stuff was. California, right. California marijuana. Well, that market is serving people who are, you know, pro- for the most part, you know, daily users. So their tolerance exactly. is probably very high. So exactly. for them, that, that's the kind of product that they're looking for is something that has a higher, higher degree of THC. Exactly. It's, it's what the market is demanding and that's what people are growing these days. And I'm, right. I'm actually going to touch on some of that later. Yeah. So that was kind of early reintroduction after years of sobriety and, and I had done cannabis and LSD in the military. That's what I was trying to say earlier when I said, I'm afraid to say this, um, I, I did some of that stuff while I was in the military as well. Uh, got drug tested a lot and somehow never failed a drug test. I have no idea how that happened. Praise the Lord. <laughs> At least that's my view now. But I met a guy who went to UCR. He was a microbiologist. And we were sitting on the back porch one day. I was, I don't even think I was smoking at all. But he started talking about research chemicals. And I was like, well, I've done those. I'm familiar with them. And he started talking about how he's been researching them a lot. And he's making them. So I'm like, okay, you know, what is this compound? And he said, oh, it's 
two five I something rather. And he gave me what he said was a moderate dose. 1500 UI, which is a very, very small measurement on a blotter. Put it in my mouth, absorbed it like an LSD tab. Onset of this one was a lot faster than LSD though. And very quickly built up into this weird mind loop where it was almost like I was teleporting into the future with my consciousness and predicting what was going to happen or seeing what was going to happen and then snapping back to the present and then knowing what was going to happen 10 seconds later. And then it would happen and I would start laughing about it. I thought it was funny. I was amused by this, but eventually this got annoying and I was really just like irritated by it. I was like, I wish that this would stop. And it became disorienting. And this was the first time I really experienced full time dilation. No sense of time whatsoever. And eventually it got unpleasant to the point where I had to start repeating to myself like a mantra, you're tripping, this will be over in six hours. You're tripping, this will be over in six hours. And it was the only way I could keep myself sane I had a complete dis- depersonalization. I was totally unaware of who I was. I had a vague memory of being living in California and having family in Missouri. I couldn't remember anyone's names. I couldn't remember any family ties. I couldn't remember who my roommates were that I lived with. I had a memory during this trip that I talked my roommate's ears off and smoked one of my roommate's entire packs of cigarettes. And I wasn't really a smoker. Uh, But when I talked to him about it later, I said, I I had already quit smoking cigarettes at this point. And I said, dude, I I think I owe you a pack of cigarettes. And he said, why? I said, well, because I smoked your whole pack. And he said, no, I gave you one cigarette and you puffed on an unlit cigarette a night, all night. And you didn't talk for hours. And I thought I had been having a conversation with him the whole time. Very, very strange experience. Sure. I ended up doing it again, though, at half the dose, this time with a friend. And this time it was much more pleasant. I was able to have a conversation and we had a lot of intellectual conversations about history and war and things like that. And it was, it was just an enjoyable experience. But I ended up reading about that compound later on. I, I did more research about it after I had done it. And I found out that it can kill you if you take too much. And that's when I really first started realizing like, well, no, that was the second wake up call for me. That this stuff is not something to be messed around with haphazardly like I had been. Another thing that happened when I was younger, one of those same friends I had the LSD trip where I thought my soul was being sucked out, he ate moonflower pods. He dehydrated, or his friend dehydrated two of them and then gave them to him and he ate them. Um, I had eaten fresh moonflower pods before and it was very mild, mild psychedelic effects, but he ate two of them dehydrated and dehydrating them makes it way more potent. I remember picking him up from his house and taking him to a Bible study. And during the Bible study, he became so disoriented and I knew what was going on with him. 
that I basically had to pull him out of the room and babysit him for a couple of hours. Long story short, he was getting dehydrated, very disoriented. Uh, his We ended up calling his parents. Eventually, I told the other kids at, from my church at the Bible study what was going on. And my friend was brought to the hospital by his parents and put on a catheter and charcoal put in his stomach. And he told me that during this whole experience, the Grim Reaper came to take his soul. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of religious baggage involved in these psychedelic experiences growing up in a church. And I say that because later in life, I started having more of a perspective that I, I had had people tell me in the church that psychedelics open you up to the occult and it's demonic. Um, so I had that idea in my head already. And looking back on it, I realized that a lot of us were having these experiences because that's that was in our consciousness already. Yeah, you expected it, actually. Yeah, and it came out that way. So, so I had this... So fast forward again to this 2-5-I experience that I learned later could have killed me. It actually really helped me at that time in my life. I remember it really helping me get over a breakup with a woman. Um, it really helped me just feel like it it was kind of like that classic ego death but it happened in a really weird way because of the compound I was on and I just remember it helping me a lot and then not too much time after that I came across some pure MDMA I'd never done pure MDMA before and that was a truly positive wonderful experience but that MDMA experience I remember kind of giving me like this really positive outlook on life and it allowed me to experience positive emotions again for the first time in my life and it helped me start opening up more to friends and family about things and talking about my past and I just realized that I totally skipped over my phase of atheism (laughs) so this is how dyslexics minds work mind works by the way forward backwards forward backwards in loops this is just how my mind works. And this is what psychedelics have, have shown me. And there's really nothing I can do about it. It's just how I am. But um, anyways, I did go through a phase of atheism. And it, it started while I was in the military. I was trying to get help from religious leaders in the church with my mental illness issues I was having. And they kept just giving me like, the same blanket answers of like pray more and read your Bible. That was before you met the gentleman who, you know, asked you how you were doing. Yeah, no, that was after. So this would have been after that. So I went through that phase where that gentleman helped me. He was a mentor and he really helped me a lot. Understand spirituality again. Like I came back to Christianity with like this whole different perspective, having experienced everything I'd experienced. And he really helped me with that journey, that, that kind of new understanding. Uh, but then I was then at, when you went to Florida, Florida, you didn't get the same kind of support from the religious no. community. No, I did not have a good mentor. The one mentor I tried two two men I tried to reach out to to ask if they would be my mentor. The first man said, I do not understand depression whatsoever. 
uh, at least he was honest. And he said, I, I don't want to deal with this and I'm going to delineate to someone else. So the second man said, yeah, I've, I've um, mentored men with depression before and, and I'll, you know, I'll meet with you at, once a week. And so we did this for a while. And at one point he decided to point out to me that the music I was listening to was the problem. And he told me, he proceeded to tell me that it was scientifically proven that metal music is negative and has a negative effect on the psyche of the human brain. And that classical music is positive. Worship music is positive. It's a different energy and it has a positive effect on the brain. And I was like, that's cool. I've read those scientific studies before, but how does this help me? Um, I mean, I'm into this music and it's the only thing helping me. It's the only thing helping me cope with my depression right now. And looking back on it, he was really telling me the exactly what I needed to hear to like push me into the next phase of my life. And uh, I'll explain that. So I decided that I was just fed up with the church and the church had no way of dealing with the kind of issues I was having. I couldn't talk to anyone in the church about psychedelics. I couldn't talk to anyone in the church about mental health. And I still didn't even really understand my own mental health very well at that point. So I decided to have a what I call a thought experiment. And I was going to try to convince myself that God didn't exist. I wasn't quite using the language atheism yet, but I really wanted to convince myself that God didn't exist. Uh, another interesting fact about my childhood is I was raised on um, creation science. Dr. Kent Hovind was a huge influence in my life. Uh, I watched his seminar tapes into his live seminars. So I was trying to dive into this whole world of not believing in God with a creationist viewpoint that God created the world in six days, literally, and the earth was only 6,000 years old. And I quickly started finding that those two things don't mix very well. At least in my mind, it didn't. Because I, I really wanted to believe in macroevolution to wrap my mind around not believing in God. And I just couldn't do it. It was like, no matter how many discussions I would have with people about macroevolution, I was just like, no, I, I can't. <laughs> just can't. I can't go there. It was really weird because I wanted to. I would say that's the one thing that like kept me from fully pushing into atheism, but atheism was definitely on my mind. And I was aware of people around me that were self-proclaimed atheists and listened to a lot of metal music and were nerds and were into science. So, uh, you know, so you gravitated towards that because that was the new process you I, wanted to, to develop. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to explore it. I was angry at God. I remember my dad trying to be an influence in my life in this period of time in my life, but I just couldn't take it seriously because I thought he was a hypocrite because he was growing pot and he was still drinking, but he would sometimes call me up and be like, son, do you know the Lord? And I would just be like, yeah, dad, yeah, dad, like whatever. But as much as my dad was not part of my life uh, for a long time, there was always something about him. He just wanted to make sure that I knew the Lord. And then my mom, she would raise concerns. And I remember one particular thing that happened. She called me up one time and she was crying. And she said, I just want to see my son in heaven. 
And I just remember that like shaking me to my core. I was just like, oh my goodness. Like I'm affecting the people around me with what I'm doing with my destructive behavior. But it still didn't keep me from going through this phase of just being angry at the church. So after California, I was still, I would say I was still going through this atheism phase there with the 2-5-I and the MDMA. But the MDMA just like really positively affected me and it opened my, it just opened me up emotional to experience new things in life. And I moved back home kind of because of these psychedelic experiences. My mom told me that her heart's desire was for me to move back home and marry a Christian woman. And I said, yeah, that's a good idea. I think I'll do that. But I was still kind of not open to church at all. Eventually, I got into a totally different church that my mom had found. Um, It was the more modern, also non-denominational church. I remember being in this church for months, just sitting in the pews, just being like, these people can't teach me anything that I don't already know. I was very arrogant. But eventually, the intellectualism of the pastor we had, he he was a college professor too, uh, taught um, religion and philosophy. But the intellectualism of the pastor really appealed to me, to my atheistic side. And eventually, I just kind of slowly started opening up to him and listening. And instead of sitting in the church pews thinking about anything and everything other than what he was saying, I was actually focusing in on the words he was saying and taking it to heart. And this is just a slow transformation because I was so, I had so many defenses walled up at this point that I was just like, there's no way you're getting through to me. (laughs) It's kind of the attitude I had, but I continued to attend church to honor my family because I was living with my mom again at the time. So eventually my, I just remember this phase I went through where I felt like I had this really hardened heart and like the scales were just pulling away from my hardened heart. And I just started opening up to all sorts of things that I was never open to for a long time. I started talking to people more about things and eventually I got to the point Still not talking about drugs and psychedelics, but eventually I got to the point where I remember reflecting back on my life and going, oh my goodness, I thought I was running from God that whole time, but he was right there with me the entire process, every step of the way. And I can no longer deny that. And a lot of that had to do with me getting back into nature and meditation and things as well. After the MDMA experience, um, I was just becoming a healthier, more whole person that was learning how to relate to my old self and relate to other people better and integrate things from my past into my new self. Uh, Interesting kind of transformation I was going through. And a lot of people in my church noticed and, and were talking to me about it. And they were like, I could tell you were angry and closed off for months and now you're a totally different person again. And that was, I mean, that was just like huge weights lifted off my shoulders. Just like I belong to a community again. God is on my side. 
Oftentimes, um, I think when we come into a, a new community like that, we assume we're being, you know, quiet and reserved and people don't really know us. I mean, there's something intuitive about the human spirit. I think especially when someone's in the presence of like a worship service, you can read their body yeah. language and you kind of know what headspace mm-hmm. they're in to, to a large degree. So mm-hmm. they probably saw your defensiveness, you know, even though you yeah. weren't, you might be verbalizing yeah. it. They probably recognized that you yeah. were, had your, your guard up. People, people are intuitive. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but then something interesting happened. Uh, I did meet a Christian woman, <laughs> um, but she wasn't conservative. She was a lot more liberal. And I was still, I was diving more into like ultra conservative thinking again at that point, which kind of goes along with the lines of that straight edge thing I was talking about before that subculture mm-hmm. of punk where it's like veganism, don't drink, don't smoke, like very religious, legalistic kind of thinking but involved in the music scene. So I was kind of going back into that kind of thinking, unfortunately. Meeting my wife was probably the second phase of transformation for me because I had dealt with so much loneliness throughout my life, being abandoned by my father, women treating me like I was a play toy and not something that could the relationship quality. So meeting my wife was the first experience I ever had where another person could come into my life and make me not feel lonely and someone I could share things with deeply and intimately. We're 10 years apart. (laughs) And another interesting fact about my wife is she was born into a white family and she had she was born with almost black skin and as a child she had an afro uh it was we think a recessive gene from grandparents she had a grandmother that had darker skin but eventually kind of turned lighter later in life my wife hasn't turned lighter she's stayed the same she got called the n-word a lot growing up she would get pulled over by cops in the middle of the night being like, Hey, what are you up to? You look like you're up to no good kind of, kind of run-ins with small town cops in Missouri, uh, race Christian as well. But, um, I don't, I don't, she was public schooled, you know, so more of a liberal influence taught evolution, things like that. And immediately in our relationship, what started really helping me learn more about, just life in general and spirituality and things was like two people of two different backgrounds and two different belief systems can totally live a life together and be congruent and be in unity at least most of the time. And I really believed this because of some of the psychedelic experiences I had and realizing that we really are one and we are all one and we are all having more of a shared experience than we realize And all of us affect each other in a bigger way than we realize. So I started kind of going on this, I guess, transformation of just like how I see the world again, all over again, through marriage and a loving relationship. And at one point, I did start having some anger problems come up in the relationship because of my past. 
And I was also having pain from old injuries. I'm, I'm a disabled veteran. Um, I have service-connected disabilities, 80%, you know, full coverage, full medical care from the VA, uh, which I have to admit has never been very good care. But at this time, I was also working in nursing homes. I was a physical therapist assistant. Within the marriage, though, I was kind of going through this weird phase where I was working in nursing homes and I was just like absorbing negative energy out of my patients um, because that's the kind of person I am, deeply empathetic. I've always been that way. And I feel like my uh, getting saved experience at six years old um, started that for me just having compassion and empathy for other people. So I was working in nursing homes and in nursing homes, you deal with a lot of dementia and depression. And I was just like, I felt like I was just absorbing all the pain and suffering out of these people's lives and just taking it on myself. And I was dealing with a lot of physical pain. The job was a lot more physical than I thought it was going to be. I was basically just, Bending over and serving people all day, changing adult diapers sometimes, helping people go to the bathroom. Uh, And at one point, I remember we were trying to go to sleep in bed. I was with my wife and I started crying. And I told my wife, I said, all my friends are dead or most of my friends are dead because there was so much death going on around me. And I started realizing that I had gotten into the wrong career field. And it was around that time I also started uh, researching health things that could help me with what I was going through. Uh, So I started using a lot of CBD, knowing full well that I could lose my job if anyone found out, because even that was frowned upon by the medical field and you could lose your license for doing that kind of stuff. So I started using CBD a lot. I found out that for me, I don't think the average person I've, I've had other people t- uh, smoke federally legal CBD cannabis with me before. And they say it does nothing for them, but for me, it, um, it actually kind of got me high, uh, but it was enjoyable again for the first time in years. I was finally able to enjoy cannabis again. And it was so helpful with what I was going through emotionally and physically so my wife was on board. Um, she said, yeah, that's fine. Continue to do it. Um, I did eventually start incorporating some medical marijuana, I guess you would say. I did get a medical license. Then I got a hip surgery. And I have been in excruciating, unbearable pain ever since. It caused complications with my back and my ankle. I'm still sorting issues out with that stuff. So unfortunately, I ended up leaning heavier and heavier into uh, medical marijuana and kind of just going down that rabbit trail again, trying to deal with my pain and my issues I was dealing with. But I was still heavily involved with the church. I was using cannabis responsibly, going to life groups, involved in in prayer and and outreach things. But I kind of started to feel like it was estranging me from people and like I had a secret life again. And I really didn't like that. I opened up with a couple of people about cannabis and they were just like, that's cool. We like cannabis too. And then they didn't want to talk about it. 
And that frustrated me because I'm the kind of person that needs to talk about these kind of things. And I want to feel safe talking about these things in a Christian environment. So later I came across a unique opportunity to uh, start sitting with uh, psilocybin um, recreationally. Mostly I didn't have access to any way of doing it medically or ritually, I guess. So it was still more of a recreational use, but um, obviously I learned a lot from when I was younger with my uh, more wild, haphazard, just totally irresponsible uses of psychedelics. I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have a trip sitter. I asked my wife if she would do it. It was my first time ever with psilocybin. And it was such a more positive, enjoyable experience than anything I'd ever experienced before. What did you My, hope? What did you hope to gain? Were you looking for more of an emotional relief, or did you did you anticipate was, possibly finding some relief from your physical ailments as well? Or I wasn't really thinking of it as like a health benefit at the time. It was really more of a curiosity, and I just had an opportunity. It was something I'd always wanted to try when I was younger. I heard lots of positive things about mushrooms when I was younger. So it was really more of a curiosity in the compound of psilocybin than anything. I just wanted to experience it. Um, I'm, I'm the kind of person that likes to seek out experiencing things personally. Um, I, also around this time, I was becoming aware of kind of more early Christian mystics so uh, a big influence in my life at this time was um, Rob Bell. He started the Mars Hills Church in, in Michigan and then later moved out to California with his wife to start his podcast, The Robcast. And I'm an audiovisual learner. So perfect way for me to dive into spirituality through audio. But that was another thing that started kind of making me feel a little bit estranged in the church I was in because I started becoming aware that a lot of Christians thought Rob Bell was a heretic and was leading people astray. But I was learning really, really amazing things from him. And it became really apparent really quickly that most of the things he was talking about were things I already knew. And he was literally just putting language to things I already knew that I couldn't put language to yet because nobody had ever talked about spiritual concepts in that way before. So the beginnings of going down that rabbit hole and also getting back into cannabis and mushrooms kind of happened around the same time. Uh, that first experience with psilocybin was the most ex positive experience I ever had with psychedelics because it helped me open up to my wife more and like dive even deeper into intimacy, if it, like communicative wise. And it really helped me feel more connected to her. We had been kind of like struggling with some of that stuff previously. And she was, she was, she had a positive outlook on that experience. It was a, uh, four grams of dried mushrooms for my first experience. Well, that's significant. That's a, you know, yeah. that's, that's not like a, uh, uh, an introductory dose, you know, that's yeah. They say, they say introductory dose is more like two grams and I was mm -hmm. easily doubling that. So, but it, you know, it was intense and psilocybin can be really uncomfortable for, especially for me. There's a 
there's a really intense body load to it, but I just feel like I gained so much of it out of the experience. I wanted to keep doing it. Uh, but at first I was like, no, this is a one-time thing. Like I told my wife, like, this is a one-time thing. I'm never, you know, I'm just, my, I, I had 33 grams in my possession and I was like, I'm going to do four grams and throw the rest away. <laughs> uh, well, um, that didn't happen. So one of the things that happened during that trip though, that was kind of traumatic and it made me realize I really had a lot more work to do in dealing with my anger and my past my wife and I were trying to watch a movie called Into the Universe. It's a movie I'd never seen before. And it's a movie all about 60s subculture, the Beatles, psychedelics, all that. And I was like, oh, I'll watch it. You know, it's awesome. And the movie starts out with a scene of a bunch of British men drunk in a bar. And I started having memory flashbacks while watching this movie on the mushroom trip of me being in a bar in Austria, drunk and stoned while I was in the military. I had smoked a joint with the German tour guide that was with us. It was a snowboarding trip in Zellensee, which is really close to the Eagle's Nest where uh, Hitler built his little fortress. Uh, so I was there, I was at a bar late at night. I was having flashbacks during this mushroom trip of this British guy who was actually two British men. Um, I remember at that time having very judgmental attitudes towards British people. I thought they were all, excuse my harsh language, but I thought they were all flaming homosexuals. So at least they acted like it. <laughs> so I'm in this bar and for some reason, these drunk men are trying to get my goat. And for no reason at all, I was trying to have a conversation with a woman. And at one point, this I, I said, I said, you know, hey, back off, uh, get away from me, you disparaging term. And, it, you know, this just brought it, the behavior on even worse. He was in my face and his friend was just agging him on and teasing. And I, I dealt with a lot of uh struggles with my sexuality growing up because a lot of people thought I was gay and I wasn't. So this happened in a bar and I'm having these memories during this mushroom trip while watching this movie into the universe. And I had this memory of how I had it all planned out in my head. There was this game in the bar where you would drive nails into a log with the sharp end of a hatchet. It was a common European bar game. In America, those kind of things probably wouldn't exist. <laughs> but in Europe, they're different. So this guy is berating me. And I'm really drunk, not quite blacked out yet. But I had this, like, I played it out in my mind, I was going to grab that hatchet and sink it right into this guy's skull. And I was so angry. And I was screaming in this guy's face. And this 17-year-old curly-headed blonde kid from Italy, I didn't even know him. I had just met him that night, grabbed me by the arm, pulled me out of the bar and said, it's not worth it. And it was the exact same thing that had happened to me when I had a, probably my first panic attack. 
an uncle of mine said some really insightful, negative things, disparaging things about me and my family, and then agged me on to go outside and fight him. And I wanted to put him in the hospital. And my cousin at the time grabbed my arm and pulled me outside and said, it's not worth it. So I three words have saved the day many times. Yeah. I felt like that mushroom experience was trying to show me something that I still needed to deal with. And I, I did, I intentionally dealt with it over the years. Um, also during the time I was reintroducing myself to cannabis and mushrooms, I started doing creative writing. Um, again, I'm dyslexic. So writing was never something I was good at. I always told myself I couldn't do it, but I really felt like cannabis and psilocybin was helping me with my ADHD and dyslexia. I felt like I could focus better. I could communicate better. I could talk better. I could read better and write better while under the influence of these things. So the mushrooms, were you using those? Uh, large doses regularly or did you start microdosing? No, no I, so I started moving more into microdosing. I started researching microdosing, but the general consensus from the science on microdosing is that it, it cannot be scientifically proven that it's actually effective because if you take a small enough dose that it, a microdose by definition is taking just below the amount where you can have a perceived effect. So I decided I would start experimenting with going just over that to where I had a perceived effect, but very mild. I called it a functional dose. <laughs> and it really helped me with my creativity. I, I started a blog because I wanted to talk about my life and I wanted to talk about psychedelics and I wanted to help educate the Christian community I was in about drugs because I felt like there was a lot of misunderstandings in the church still. One time I was going through a class in my church called Identity with Christ. And it was a very awesome class. A, lot, a good friend of mine was teaching it. He's a Bible scholar and I love Bible. So I was into it. But when we got to the end of the class, it came time to do what was called a spiritual inventory. And it was supposed to be like this six hour long thing. You take out this allotment of time in the day to go through a, a spiritual inventory with an elder in the church. And the elder was also a friend of mine, an older man. He was 80 and he was a Marine and we had related about things and I trusted him. But when he started reading this spiritual inventory and asking me questions from it, uh, one of the first things that came up was, have you ever done psychedelics and opened yourself up to the occult? And that immediately just turned me off. And I was like, nope, we're not having this conversation anymore. And I said, I basically said no. I just answered no to every single question he asked. And I said, I don't have anything more to say. Thank you. And you know, I appreciate your friendship. We prayed. And I walked out. So I did not have the experience that other people had described doing this spiritual inventory, which I just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't agree with it. It was something about it that was unsettling to me. 
So I kind of, I started setting out, taking a lot of different ideas from my past, you know, the phases of atheism I went through and, you know, my current, you know, rediscovery of Christianity. And I wanted to blog about it and write about it. And then at the same time, kind of have this education thing going on about drugs. But I very quickly realized that this was a really hard thing to come out about in the community I was in. Because I continued hearing these negative comments from Christians, like people in the 60s used psychedelics just to, you know, open themselves up to the occult and demonic things to be able to achieve fame and, and, you know, music stardom, you know. So I would hear these kind of viewpoints from Christians and I was just like, wow, that is just not really true. That's not I mean, I've just, I've experienced this in a totally different way and I don't see it that way. Right. To give them some credit, I'm sure there, I'm sure there's a minority of people who have experimented with psychedelics with the intention of possibly gaining some dark spiritual Mm -hmm. intervention or something. I'm sure, you know. Yeah. I have no doubt in my mind that people use drugs for um, demonic purposes, for demonic rituals. I have no doubt in my mind about that at all. Um, which kind of brings me to my philosophy on like the morality of psychedelics. It's really just a chemical compound. And it, I mean, it doesn't care if it's good or evil. It's a chemical. So to, to label the compound or the drug itself as evil, I don't know. I, I can't, I just can't agree with that. But I can't wholeheartedly say it's good either. Um, it's like you, you've said before, it's a tool. And you can use it for different things. And it's really all about your intentions behind it. And that's what I started realizing later in life. Uh, Another thing you uh, had discussed in previous episodes was about how people should not come to these things until they're ready. I wholeheartedly agree with that now, um, having been through what I've been through and knowing what my father went through. While I really think we could do a better job of educating people about waiting about abstinence, about what these compounds are and what they really do to your brain compared to other drugs. At the same time, it's like, I I just feel like I've seen so many ways in which it can benefit people's lives. And I, I just, I have a lot of Christian friends with mental health problems that are on lots of pharmaceutical drugs. I've been on so many pharmaceutical drugs myself throughout my military years and and my uh, VA time getting care through them. I, I'd say I've probably been on 30 or 40 different psych meds. And at one point I was on four different ones. And looking back on that, that was insanity. Uh, so what happened with the Rimron that I first got prescribed when I was 20 years old is um, I'm physically dependent on it. I am actually physically addicted to it because I've taken it so long if I stop taking it, my body basically goes into uh, withdrawal symptoms that are similar to heroin withdrawals. I've never had, I've never taken heroin. I don't know what that's like, but people compare it to that. It's one of the worst withdrawals you can go through from illicit drugs. So a lot of things I've been trying to heal from. I've been trying to heal my mind. Um, I've been trying to heal my body I was praying a lot. I really wanted God to heal me through this surgery um, because I didn't believe in miraculous healing at the time. I had a friend try to 
get me to go to a church and get prayed over and you know, for miraculous healing. And I, I said, I said no, because I had prayed for my father's healing from alcoholism for years. And that prayer request was never answered. And I just had so much baggage with that topic that I just couldn't go there. I think it's a, it's, it is a desire of my heart, but I, I couldn't do that. And so I, I still don't feel ready to open myself up to that again yet. But I believe that through a lot of research I've done, there is hope for a lot of these mental health issues I deal with uh, through psychedelics. Um, I've done a lot of reading and research on ayahuasca and um, MDMA therapy, uh, psilocybin therapy, ketamine therapy, and a lot of people are getting help for the kind of things I've been through, PTSD, depression, um, anxiety, just reliving past traumas. I really want to be able to seek opportunities for that. So that making me kind of estranged from the church and me wanting to seek potential psychedelic therapies in a state like Oregon or California. Uh, my wife and I eventually sold our house. We bought an RV. We're currently living near the Grand Canyon, working at a campsite, meeting some really interesting people. <laughs> oh, yeah, you do. You And when you meet people who travel yeah. by RV a lot, um, I don't do that, but I, I stay in a lot of campgrounds. So I'm always chatting up the person next door and it never fails. I meet just incredibly interesting people. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so one of these couples we're here with now um, actually was, lived in Springfield, Missouri, small world. And they were part of a unity church in Springfield that I was actually interested in before I left. So I've been having some interesting conversations with them, but I haven't really opened up to them yet. But I'm kind of in this weird phase in my life where like my wife and I want to find another church. We really want to be plugged into a Christian community. You know, I, I feel like we're kind of in this phase where I don't feel like I'm leaving Christianity. And I feel like a lot of people, or maybe I'm just self-conscious, but I feel like people view me that way. But I'm really um, kind of taking a break and rethinking through some things and trying to figure out where I am with this stuff. Because of the spiritual transformation I went through, I started butting heads with people politically, big time. And a lot of that had to do, and this, uh, again, everything I talk about goes full circle to something else I said previously, that song of duality by Slipknot. Uh, I started realizing that the way my brain works is I view everything as dualities. There's this side and that side to everything in life, every concept in life. And that's kind of just a truism of the universe, but that's also the way my brain works. And I started realizing that a lot of my viewpoints were really one-sided. And I started because you purpose. felt like you had to take a side, you know, you had to yeah. choose one or the other. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It was like I started becoming really aware of how a lot of people around me were, were using language in a way that was like you're in or you're out. And I really didn't like it. 
And, you know, again, like, I don't know if these things, these effects that mushrooms are having on, I'm not making a judgment call on like whether they were wonderful or not and whether they're actually producing positive results in my life. I think they are, but I also have to be honest with myself that I could be deceiving myself. I, I don't know. And these are things I'm struggling with right now. These are all reasons why I stopped writing my blog. I just, I was like, I don't, I don't know if this is good. I don't know if I should be sharing this, but the most recent mushroom experience I had, again, I, I drank about four grams of mushroom tea. I found out that making it into tea makes you not get nauseous. Uh, so it's a more pleasant experience and there's less body discomfort. And I got into a conversation with my wife during this trip uh, that I really have a heart for helping people understand that these plants are, in my eyes, kind of a spiritual food or medicine for the soul, if you will. At least they can be used that way. I feel like it's a really good tool if you have a spiritual problem to address it with a spiritual tool. And I feel like us as humans uh, together, we need to understand these compounds better and respect them more. And, and part of my views on that is we as, as you know, man, scientists, atheists, people that are in control of these things, we like to take things in nature and synthesize them and concentrate them and turn them into things that can be sold and commoditized, commoditized yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> And I'm really concerned about that because of the research chemicals I've experienced. I, because of my experiences with uh, pharmaceuticals, I don't trust the, the FDA approving these drugs. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually worried that people are going to start making a lot of weird new drugs in the world. Things like fentanyl. Well, I don't I, think, you know, the pharmaceutical industry doesn't have a spiritual nest for you to integrate your experience of their compounds. You know, it's not like you take mm -hmm. Ritalin or um, uh, a vaccine or whatever. There's no, people aren't concerned about like your spiritual condition when using no. those things, but no. this is introducing a whole different level of effects and expectations. Right. And there's no place for people to land. And the, the experience you're having with trying to feel at home in a Christian community and having so much difficulty mm -hmm. with that, I've met dozens of people who, are, who feel exactly the way you do in that regard. Okay. And so you're not alone. Um, I guess in some ways, I'm fortunate that my psychedelic experience was limited to my youth. And so... Then I just kind of like embodied, you know, a normal Christian lifestyle for like 20 years and okay. then began to reconsider these things. So it's like I was already nested in, you know, a very cohesive Christian communities. And then I came back to, to these things through a lens of love, concern, investigation, you know, and so. Mm -hmm. I guess to some degree, I'm shielded from from that level of like reintroduction. You know, I'm not like reintroducing myself to a Christian community. I'm mm -hmm. I, I, I exist in one. So, 
yeah, there's a lot of challenge for people in your situation because this is very yeah. front, front of mind to you. But any mm-hmm. community you mm-hmm. come into, at the very most, they're probably just going to view it as a very peripheral third rail kind of issue, even if they right. don't have a negative connotation. Um, it's right. going to be almost impossible at this point in our lives to find a Christian community that's like a functional, active church-like experience where people are going to be like where they're passionate about christ and then at the same time open to these things yeah it's i think it's going to be a little while so we have to we have to navigate that land in a way that still preserves you know our interests and our integrity while balancing that with the expectations of society and it's yeah uh, it's a challenge yeah i i totally agree So I was on this whole thing about duality and then I was introduced, I was introduced through Rob Bell to Richard Rohr and I read Richard Rohr's book, The Universal Christ. Just that word universal is alarming to people where I come from because uh, that's not okay. Universalism is not accepted, but uh, I had heard Rob Bell talk about the Christ consciousness concept. I had also heard him talk about this concept that there's a, like, I don't want to get into that one yet. I'm going to stick on duality because I'll get too side rail. So Richard Rohr talks about non-dualistic thinking. And he also kind of makes an assessment in this book about Eastern philosophy and kind of compares and contrasts it to Western philosophy makes some interesting ties about Buddhism and the Christianity and Catholicism, makes some interesting pros and cons, basically, to Catholicism and Christianity. He's, he's Catholic, or at least was raised that way. Talked about mysticism a lot in his book. And one of the things he talked about was this mystic who was on a train and had this mystical experience, not on drugs, where they suddenly started having this sense, but they could also see it, that Christ was in every single person they saw. Didn't matter who it was. Every single person that walked by, they saw Christ in that person. And I really resonated with this story because for a long time now, I've been playing around with this concept of like the God that's within us all. Like I, I know we're not God because to say I am God would be blasphemy, but there's a part of God in each and every one of us. I feel like call it the imprint of God, call it the image of God, whatever you want to say. So these are some other issues I've been struggling with because I was traditionally taught that, you know, there's, there's people who have Christ and there's people who don't have Christ. And that's never settled well with me. And when I read this book, I was just like, it was again, like I was talking about before with someone giving language to something I felt like I already knew, but I couldn't put words to it yet. It was it, what I've come to understand is what I call uh, deep knowing. And again, I, I, I can't explain this stuff. I don't understand it. I've had so many things happen in my life where I just knew something. and I could not explain how I knew it. And then it would be confirmed later. And I was just like, wow, that's interesting. 
so this started affecting how I conduct myself in the world, how I treat people and see other people. I started having less of a judgmental attitude towards people right out of the gate and, and like just perceiving, like reading a book by its cover and just perceiving what I wanted to perceive out of people and being more like approaching all people as if, uh, this is going to sound weird. I actually pulled this idea from rap music. I'm very, very into hip hop music now. I've moved away from the metal scene most, mostly. I'm now into hip hop. Most of the artists I listen to are into spirituality or some form of psychedelia. Um, but I also like to educate myself about what's going on in the world of uh, racial tension. So I started picking up on this concept that comes from a rap group that I like, where the, everyone within the rap group, it's actually kind of a Muslim concept. They talk a lot about mathematics and they call each other God because the black Muslim believes they're the original Hebrew and that they are king and they are the original Israelites. I started picking up on this stuff from rap music. And they call each other God. They would walk up to each other and say, what's up, God? And I didn't start doing it, but I started doing it in my head. And I got to the point where I could not not see God in other people. It didn't matter who it was. It was just like, or, or whatever. I was just like, I could be having a conversation with someone and see Christ or God in them. And it just started changing the way I interacted with people, even changed the way I interact with my own dog because my dog has behavioral problems and pisses me off sometimes. And, you know, I have emotional outbursts, but I feel like now that I've been using psilocybin, I'm just like so much more aware of deeper spiritual things, but it's also because of things I'm reading, things I'm confirming but again, all this stuff makes me feel at odds with the tradition I come from, the, the tradition that I came back into that, that brought me back into the fold as a prodigal son. Well, all those people that you're interacting with, for better or worse, they're carrying that same baggage that you and I were brought up with. The, you know, the yeah. duality, the us and them. Yeah. You know, we're this church. We're not like those that church across the street. You know, most mm -hmm. of them aren't mm -hmm. even going to heaven anyway. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. What what helped me is just being compassionate with all my fellow Christians because right they and it's not that I'm more enlightened than them. Maybe I am. I, I, exactly. I'm not. I'm no, not making that judgment. That they just haven't been able to step back enough to see that we're all struggling with the same things. You know, we're all mm -hmm. once once we get beyond basic survival, then we start struggling with, you know, psychological and spiritual concepts. And so we're going to try to right. vet everything. And then when we enter into a group mm -hmm. where everybody mm -hmm. kind of centers around central ideas it is impressed upon us. We have to buy into those ideas to be a part of the group. And so then that reaffirms yeah. all, all that duality again. <laughs> and it's yeah. like this self licking yeah. ice cream cone, as they call it just repeats. Yeah. And then, and then we do the same thing to our children. We teach them the same. And so, yeah. So such challenge. My goal with what I'm trying to do. And the reason I want to just come out and say all this stuff on a podcast 
and just get it out there is so that I can start writing about this stuff again and working it out again because I've been feeling stuck for about the last year and a half after I stopped writing. Um, I wrote about that whole story about my father and all of his crazy wild experiences. And then that was the last thing I wrote. Another thing is right before my wife got wife and I got married, my father passed away from ALS at the age of 65. And before he passed away, I was going through some really just horrible things where I was angry and I was verbally telling people that I hated my father. And my father at one point asked me for help. Um, and I said no, because I felt like I had boundaries that I needed to keep. But it broke my heart to say no to him. And that was the last time I really had a conversation with him. He was with a third wife who he had divorced, who then came back to take care of him because she cared about him. He was really, really selfish at this stage in his life. And all he really could think about was himself. He had a plastic tube going into his stomach because he couldn't swallow anymore. The ALS started centrally instead of in the arms and legs like it did did with Lou Gehrig's he's the one that raised awareness of ALS the baseball Mm -hmm. player Lou Gehrig's right so with him he started with his legs and his arms failing first my father had some weird reverse ALS where it started in his lungs and his throat and so the first thing to go was his ability to speak and swallow so he had a tube in his stomach um, his third ex-wife, weird saying that, called me one time and told me that he was pumping liquor into his stomach through the tube. And she was asking me to help her with the problem. And I was like, I can't believe you're calling me and asking me to help you with this issue when I'm the one that had to grow up under that kind of trauma and abuse as a child. And so when my father and her were asking me to help them, I said, no, you're where you need to be. You kind of dug your own grave and you're where you're supposed to be with the person that you're supposed to be with. And she's agreed to take care of you till your end of life. And I'm going to leave you like that. So that was kind of the last communication I had with my father. And um, he passed away right before our wedding. And it probably took me a good three years to like get to where I could actually fully like even cry or grieve about it. There was just so much stuff tied to that, that um, when my uncle first called me and told me he passed, I just, I couldn't, there was, I could not emotionally process it yet at all. But in my father's death, I feel like it's allowed me to explore these things more. I'm retelling my father's story and I'm retelling my own story with a focus of how God intervened in our lives and protected us. I've never experienced supernatural healing like my father did, but I I do think I've experienced supernatural protection multiple times. Um, I've had many, 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 many things happened in my life where I realized I should I should be dead or in prison 
and uh, God has protected me from so much. My mind is still intact with all the uh, self-abuse I went through with alcoholism and things. And um, that's, that's kind of the basis of my, uh, what keeps me moving forward with my, my faith and my desire to be part of the Christian um, experience. Well, it's uh, breaks my heart to hear, you know, about your father's passing and your, you know, your experience yeah. with that. But I mean, for what it's worth, I think you did the right thing with your boundaries. I don't, I mean, obviously yeah. the only help you could have been provided at that point would have been just your physical presence. There mm-hmm. was not anything you could, you could do to resolve the situation. And, you know, you had to protect, protect and pres- preserve your, you know, your own sanity and your own right, you know, spiritual health at that point. But and even though I'm, I'm sure you know that it's still probably, you know, it's hard to find closure, you know, with that kind it of. It is. Um, I, um, and that's, that with that. I feel like I'm finding closure in telling his story because he never got to tell it. Yeah. He was never listened to by the people in his life. He would try to talk about a lot of these things and people would um, not either not listen to him or shut it down. Mm-hmm. And I feel like now that my father is passed on and in a better place, and I know he is, I'm better able to deal with these things and heal and move on. Well, we're, we're fortunate, you know, in the way that yeah. he was not, because we are able to have this conversation across you know, yeah. hundreds of miles away. And there's yeah, totally thousands of people uh, waiting totally. to listen to what we have to say about it. <laughs> exactly. I, and, uh, I'm so excited that I'm finally um, Abel, uh, thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, you also said in your outline, you want me to talk about where I'm going with my future. And I kind of already talked about what I plan on doing with my writing and tell- retelling my story and my father's story. But um, the God is moving in big ways right now in our lives. I know he is. And um, the VA is helping me get back into school. I'm going to go to college or back at UCR um, where I met that guy that introduced, reintroduced me to psychedelics. I'm going back to that college to become a mechanical engineer. And I love bicycles. Um, Bicycles have, in my opinion, saved my life because of dealing with mental health. It's riding mountain bikes and gravel bikes are like, to me, it's like my spiritual practice. I think Jesus had a spiritual practice with carpentry. And for me, it's building and writing and designing bicycles. And I want to learn how to design things that will help other human beings in the future who deal with similar things I do find that escape into nature that has been so healing for me. And having worked in um, physical therapy before, I kind of I kind of have some ideas of like, making adaptive equipment for disabled veterans to be able to ride bicycles. So that is a, that is an incredible, noble endeavor that, um, yeah, I just, I can only imagine the passion of something like that being stripped away from someone Mm -hmm. and then someone engineering something that restores that opportunity back to them again. Um, Yeah. That's a, that's a beautiful goal. Yeah. I was, I was 
working in a bike shop not too long ago and I, I sold a bike to a guy that was missing an arm from a motorcycle accident. He said he hadn't touched a bike in 10 years and I helped him adapt things over, communicate with mechanics to get the bike adapted to him to ride it with one arm. So awesome. Yeah. Well, so Trevor? that's where I'm going. I feel like God is turning so many things around in my life and restoring things and allowing me to use my gifts and talents to do good in the world instead of destructive things that I did as a youth. So that brings me to death and resurrection. And that's a saying I picked up was it's not that it happened. It's that it happens. And I've applied that to a lot of things in life. So death and resurrection, it's not that it happened. It's that it happens. Not only to Jesus, but to each and every one of us. I have been through death and resurrection multiple times in my life, I feel like. And um, it's a process. And it's something I'm, I embrace now. I'm not confused by it anymore when I go through a phase of disorientation and I I feel like I'm more connected and grounded to my creator than ever. And I don't let those kind of things shake me as much as they used to. So it's, it's almost like the pendulum or the yo-yo is starting to stable, stabilize. In a sense. Yeah. Well, I think it begins um, with this right here, you know, sharing our stories. Uh, thank you Amen. for your courage and your willingness you. to delve into your past and yeah. to, yeah. And to share that with us. And uh, um, I had a, an idea, a request, and I don't know if you're open to it, but I love the fact that you share music at the end of your episodes. Mm -hmm. And I have a song from a hip hop artist that I happen to really enjoy that I thought would be nice if you could play at the end. Sure. Let's and find a way to integrate that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a song by, I'll tell you about it right now. It's a song by mac miller and it's called swimming it does have one cuss word in it feel free to edit that out it will not change the meaning of the song but it's meaningful to me because mac miller uh committed suicide dealing with a lot of similar mental issues that i struggle with and he's a very creative person like me here he was and um it's just a beautiful song and it would mean a lot to me to share that with folks after everything I've shared here today. Sure. And uh, I'm eager to check it out. I'm not familiar awesome. with the song. So okay, I'll be looking it up. Awesome. Trevor, I really appreciate you joining me and, um, and sharing your story. And um, I look forward to whatever you do in the future, especially if you, uh, if you engage uh, on this topic, if you return to your yeah. blog or. Yeah. Um, Oh, uh, and the name of it is, if anyone is interested and would yeah, like sure. to follow Leave along, here and we'll link to it, it as well. It is called journey-freethinker.blog, a travel with a God focus. It's a little bit of a play on words because freethinkers are atheists. But um, I really appreciate your time today, Clint. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, all my nerves are gone and I feel at peace. And I'm so glad I got to share all that today. So that's great. Well, you're giving, you're giving other people the courage to share the way mm -hmm. God and psychedelics have uh, influenced their, their lives as well. So for good or for good or for bad. <laughs> uh, yeah. A well, little bit of both usually. Yeah. Know.
Yeah. Well, brother, uh, stay in touch. And uh, okay, you know, I will. Hopefully, we'll hear from you soon. Okay. Goodbye. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Yeah. Again, my sincere thanks to Trevor for joining me for a conversation. I hope that his continued perseverance gives you strength as you navigate the challenges in your own life, and that like him, in Christ, you continue pressing forward with hope for the future and a desire to make a positive difference in the lives of others. Since our conversation, Trevor and his wife have relocated near family, and he has returned to school to pursue his engineering career. Join me in praying for him and all of us as we pursue our goals in life with God's help. And please remember to support and share the podcast and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode where we will meet another fellow Christian to share their journey of faith and their thoughts and experiences concerning psychedelics. And until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Mm -hmm.